This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is former Navy SEAL Remy Adelecki. From Nigeria to the Bronx to the SEAL teams to Hollywood, actor, director, writer. This is his book right here called Transformed, A Navy SEAL's Unlikely Journey from the Throne of Africa to the Streets of the Bronx to Defying All Odds. He has a lot going on, as you'll find out in this podcast, and has a film, The Unexpected, which is out on September 30th on his YouTube channel that deals with human trafficking. And now, without further ado, Remy Adelecki. Remy, are you there? Oh, man, there you are. Awesome. Oh, man. Sorry, I think we sent you the wrong link or something like that. Sorry about that. I was nah, going here, going through my direct messages. I'm like, well, maybe something came up. And, uh, uh, and I, I, I ain't going to do my boy like that. I, uh, <laughs> you got I a lot like, going on. I would totally understand because you have a thousand uh, things going on, which are, which are all amazing. Thank you, brother. I logged in early because my computer, I, I'm, I'm past due for a new computer, man. You know how it is as a writer. So oh, yeah. when I click on the Zoom link, it takes like five minutes for everything to get squared away. So I worked I logged in like at uh, eight minutes before. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's what I do now. I buy a new computer. Uh, well, two every year, one for the business yeah. side and then one that's not even connected. Well, it's connected to the Internet just so the word can update, but right. otherwise nothing else uh, just for writing. So just minimize some of those distractions. Uh, I need to put, what is it called? Is it called Final Draft? Is that what you're writing? Yeah, yeah, that's what I write in. I write in Final Draft, man. Nice. Now everybody's sending me things in Final Draft, so I just got it. So I need to work with it a little bit, a little bit more. But uh, but yeah, now that's the way every book gets its own computer that is separate, and then I just take it and stack it, and that's just how it's got to be. There's too many distractions these days and a lot of them are necessary, you know, as you know, you know, Hey, that's a good thing though, brother. You know, it's a good thing to have so much going on that, uh, you got to kind of compartmentalize it that way. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. I don't even know where to start with you. Cause, uh, we did, I was so bummed. We didn't get to meet up on set when you came out and did the terminal list and you're on the HRT of course, in the terminal <laughs> list. Awesome. So thank you for taking the time to, to do that. I really appreciate it. Oh man, too cool, too cool. But you have so much going on. So I want the book, I definitely want to talk about the book. I mean, the story is incredible and I hope someone makes it into something someday because it's so yeah. unique. The journey is so unique and, and inspirational. So I love that. You have SAS Who Dares Wins. And I, I think it's coming yeah. to this country under a different name. Coming, is that coming to America, man? Just like Eddie Murphy. <laughs> coming to America, nice. baby. <laughs> I mean, it's such a worldwide hit, you know. I'm surprised it yeah. took so long to get it here. I know, I know. They've been, Minnow's been trying to get it in the U.S. since, I want to say, season two, so about five years ago. And uh, none of the networks, you know, took a bite at it. And then finally, Fox did, uh, you know, because they changed the format and added two Americans to the British version. And I guess uh, Fox saw that and they were like, oh, that's the way we can do it. <laughs> okay, I see. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I want to talk to you about that, what that experience was like. And then the film, man. It is awesome. Thank you for sending it. It is because uh, I was like, oh, it'll be good. You know, it'll be fine. And then I started watching it and I was just, I was glued. And, yeah. you know, we talked a little bit about the human trafficking stuff, but yeah, the way man. you do it and then you do it non-linear, so it's going backwards. And it's just yeah. like, that was impressive. I mean, it's, it is amazing. You did such a good job with it. Thank you. Appreciate it. I had to find a way because, and I'm sure we'll get in it 
further detail later, but I had to find a way to make it as palatable as possible because if I told a story in a very linear fashion and you lose the audience, you gotta, you gotta have the person, I say that the air quotes, be alive at the end. I like memento, memento, you know, Christopher Nolan is one of my, he's my, I have three favorite directors and, and, uh, you know, two of my writer directors, Christopher Nolan, Denny Bellanew and Quentin Tarantino. And so like, I kind of stole from, uh, from Christopher Nolan on the whole memento piece. (laughs) No, I love it, man. I love it. And it's, uh, I was going to guess Tarantino, um, cause nonlinear, uh, format that he's used uh, a couple times, uh, obviously. Um, but, uh, man, it was awesome. And you had Justin Garza in there, uh, crushing. Yeah. You got terminalist brother. Yeah. Bring it up. Bring the team back together. And then Gonzo, the EMT, he was a seal. Uh, Yeah. He was a seal as well. So he jumped on board. Great dude. He was an East coast guy. I I'm going to look, go back and watch it again. I didn't recognize him. So yeah. I'm, now I will now because I because I know him from the East Coast, but now I'm going to go back and watch it with that eye. Man, yeah. I did not recognize him in there. That is awesome. Yeah. Man, and such a cool. I want to talk all about it. I want to go to the book yeah. probably first, but but I got to yeah, say yeah. that that heart trance, the, the like cutting open and pulling it ar- yeah. out. Yeah. I mean, that was serious. Uh, I mean, I've done hunted a lot and, you know, pulled a couple hearts out here and there. Um, and that way you guys did. That was legit. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Oh. Took a lot of coordination, trying to find the right props and uh, way to make it work and seem realistic. You know, it did so yeah that was, uh, that I was going for because you know, and we'll get into it later. But human traffic, I've been, I've studied this thing to nausea. And also, I was my heart blew up. No pun intended when you told me that your next book is going to be human traffic. Cause I was like, bro, I got so much intel. I know I was I, seriously right before you reached out two days. I think it was before I wrote down something about organ transplants and another, and a future book. So it's not the next one. It's like the next one or the next one, but anyway, it's in there, but it's right there on a yellow sticky right in front of my computer. So it's front of mind. Um, because it's so crazy. I mean, people think of human trafficking and you think, uh, you know, some other, other reasons, but you don't necessarily jump right to organs. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, it's a subset. It's something that's overlooked and it's something that's not often talked about because frankly, a lot of people don't believe it. Yeah. They don't believe it, but there's so much information out there about actual organ trafficking campaigns, operations that have happened that have been busted. And again, yeah, I know we're going to get to it later, but I got some stuff that's going to make people be like, damn, but it's, yeah. it's, it's sad. Somebody has to, and the reason why I made the film was because I needed to expose the darkness, you know, I, and, and, you know, back it up a little bit. I wrote it as a TV treatment at first and my agent pitched around town and everybody was like, it's too dark, too dark. Nobody wants to watch it. Pandemic, nobody wants to watch it. So I said, you know what? Somebody's got to, so I, I flipped the bill and made the film. And then that's the goal is to kind of show people that this thing actually happens. Yeah, know? no, that's incredible. What did it, what did you first start, uh, I guess, learning about or becoming interested in human trafficking and then the organ side of it? Yeah. So when I got out of the teams in 2016, you know, I, I worked in a different, few different nonprofit capacities, like partnerships. So I, I went to prison, I did prisons. I, I went to inner city schools, like in some of the worst neighborhoods in the country and just sharing my story and volunteering in different ways. And another thing I did was I volunteered with a few different human trafficking organizations. And um, one of them being Operation Underground Railroad, which is based out in in Utah. And, you know, I remember going down to the Dominican Republic and, and Haiti with them and 
bro, my eyes were freaking open. It's like a whole nother world that, you know, so many people don't know exists. And, you know, just, you know, as a father, I was just like, like, like my heart just dropped, you know, seeing what I saw and, and hearing the stories. And um, fast forward, I was actually, as soon as I landed back in the States from that trip, my, my phone, I had all of these voice voicemails from Michael Bay's producing partner, Mike Case. Uh-huh. And he's like, Remy, where have you been? Like, we've been trying to get in contact with you because we want you to consult on uh, Six Underground, a Netflix movie, Six Underground. Uh-huh. I was like, girl, I was just in, I was just in DR working with OUR because, you know, they employ a lot of former spec ops guys. He was like, really? I was like, yeah, man, it was crazy down there. So... I say all I can say like it, that it was a blessing that it happened back to back like that on that particular trip because that's when the idea came to me like, okay, how can I have a bigger effect? You can go rescue two kids, but there's going to be a thousand more kids that need to be rescued. Mm-hmm. Film and TV. Everybody watches films. Everybody watches TV. You know, most people probably won't read articles, but they'll they'll watch a movie or they'll watch something. And so I just thought about it like a psyops operation. You know, when we're overseas and we were working with the psyops and winning the hearts and minds, I figured, you know what? Let me try and tell a story that will penetrate the hearts and minds and galvanize the masses to get into this fight. But most importantly, like educate them of the reality of this world. Yeah. And so that was the whole. That's how it all kind of came together and started. And you know, I give credit to OUR for allowing me to work with them for the time that I did, and then also um, Michael Bay for kind of and, and, and Bay Films for kind of helping inspire me through that kind of time period of of everything happening. Amazing. And I love the Michael Bay connection in the book yeah. where you see, where you see bad boys, which was awesome by the way. And then the rock also, you know, huge yeah. fan of, of all his yeah. stuff, but I love that how it comes full circle at the end, you guys end up working together then. But I mean, yeah. that's so, I mean, I don't know how many times those people that are in those positions, think about it, think about how much of an impact that their, their films have on people. Maybe yeah. they, they do they, I don't know if they think about it generally, but then they're so yeah. busy or do they really think, Hey, this thing is going to inspire some kid to become a seal or to become a police officer yeah. or whatever it is. Do they, you know, I, I'm always fascinated by how much time they spend thinking about that. Or if it's just like, generally this might inspire some people to become these other things. And what's my next project, you know? Uh, but it's amazing. But, but now, I mean, there, he's met a few different seals and he's worked with seals yeah, a few yeah. times. Yeah, uh, yeah. so I wonder how much it, uh, how much it clicks, uh, as far as how much his work has inspired people to do the things that they're actually watching on these films. Well, I wrote a letter to him um, after I worked on Transformers with him and to, to do that, you know, as he still has that letter posted on his website and it's, it's been framed and put in his office. And I just told him how, like, story has the power to change lives and save lives. And, and you know that. I mean, you're a storyteller, you're a writer, you're a producer, you get that full-fledged, you know. And so I, I really wanted him to, to know that through his storytelling, you know what I mean? And obviously the writers, I always got to give credit to the screenwriters because screenwriters don't get credit. Directors <laughs> only get all the credit. But the screenwriters for penning those stories and, and Michael Bay for breathing, breathing life into those stories because that changed my, the trajectory of my life. Yeah. You know? And, and uh, I would not have had the path. And, you know, I'm sure we'll jump into my story, but I was down a, I was going down a completely different path mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and story changed the trajectory of my life. And I, and I know that that's what you're doing um, you know, you're changing a lot of lives through the books you're writing. You know, I see 
people who, and I come across people who, so many terminals, he was like, I found Jack Carpenter, his book's awesome, it's fine, me, I want to do this, over there. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's my book, but that's what story does. It does. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, uh, and all around the world, like Hollywood, I think used to be our most powerful export um, yeah. for, in, in a positive sense, uh, from people around the world, let's say in the mid fifties, mid sixties, somewhere. And they're seeing this in a, you know, say they're in the Philippines and they're watching this and they're like, wow, I can go yeah. to America and I can do this. And, you yeah. know, it just, it, it inspires so many people around the world. And it's interesting. There's like a shift, I think somewhere, I don't know, late nineties, maybe where a, a lot of movies, um, instead of pointing out some of those more inspirational parts of our past, uh, delve into some of the more negative and, I'm wondering how that's perceived. I mean, people are still want to come land of opportunity, but yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe that's because, you know, of all the other places, like we're all that's left. But, uh, but I wonder if it's uh, how that's impacted, why people uh, want to, to come here. I don't know. It's just something that, uh, yeah. I think, I think 100%. I mean, you know, I was, you know, born in Nigeria, dude, and uh, I get messages every week from Nigerians, people from Congo, people from from uh, from uh, Benin, you name it. I get messages, hey, I want to come to America. My dream has been to come to America. I watch all of the movies, the uh, military, all of them, this is a crazy thing, all of them want to join the military. Interesting. They all say, I want to be a Marine, I want to be in, in the Navy or be a SEAL or be something. And you ask how they find out about this. One, in part, they're like, hey, watch all the movies. Yeah. So they watched the, one dude, if you ever like, yeah, I watched Black Hawk Down and man, you know, I'm from this part of Africa and I want to come to the States so I can fight with Americans. And, and uh, so a story, and then obviously they hear my story at times and then, you know, coming from Africa and then coming to, you know, uh, joining the Navy and they're like, if you can do it, I can do it, you know? Yeah. So it, I, I think we still have that power. And, you know, I much, much credit to, to, to you and the filmmakers, Antoine and uh, Chris, what you did with Toronto is because you know you kept you brought that back you guys brought that back you brought back that authentic gritty great character and you know we're just going to we're not going to focus on frivolous things we're just going to tell a hardcore great story in a way that's palatable to a mainstream audience and that's something that's been missing for a long period of time and and that's why I go back to I truly believe it, that it has you know and I know that it has like your books and along with the show has inspired and motivated a lot of people and it, it getting exported outside of the U.S. People just get hoping, you know, I want to go there. I want to be gritty. I want to be hard. I want to be after you. <laughs> it's so wild. So, because the first book, Terminalist, came out in 2018. So that means if someone was 15, 16, 17, 18, and they read it, they could be a few years into their military career yeah. by now. And I've had people this last book tour uh, in particular, uh, because uh, the last two before that was COVID and there weren't book tours. But uh, this last one, people came up and said, hey, they joined the military because they read the book. And I thought, you know, that's a possibility. People would do that. And, you know, but uh, I talked to David Morrell, who created the character Rambo back in 1972 with First Blood. And, uh, you know, I've asked him about that as well, because he's done USO tours over the years. And people would tell him, hey, I joined the military because I saw the movie First Blood, Rambo, Rambo 3. Um, you know, at, at this point, you know, Rambo four, uh, and maybe in five, but, uh, it, it, but he, he has to think about that or he goes to the hospitals and he sees these people that are, you know, missing arms and legs or dealing with traumatic brain injury or TV, you know, uh, or, uh, uh, PTSD type stuff. And, and, and he has to listen to them say, Hey, I joined, did this because of you. 
but they take it in a positive way and they say they wouldn't have changed anything. Like, exactly. I'm, you know, which is amazing. And to him, I mean, I mean, obviously that character iconic, it's right up there. I think in the, of 20th century characters, it's next to like Sherlock Holmes, Tarzan. There's a few out there now, probably born, you know, like those, um, that, uh, that are just all over the world. The most recognizable names, James Bond, of course, uh, most recognizable names, um, from books that yeah. make it to film. And, uh, and it's gosh, I, I mean, that's, if you're in the public figure and you are inspiring people to do things like join law enforcement or become an EMT or a firefighter or the military or whatever it might be. And, and bad things happen, you know, that's, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough, but, uh, but it's a part of it. It's a, it's yeah, a, it's a, a part, part of it. It's a part of the cycle. And it's, and you know, you know, you know, it's no better, it's no better way to go than to go doing what you love yeah. and doing what has gotten you up in the morning, you know? And so, you know, I think it's an honor to even be a part of that journey when people say, you know, if they're injured or they pass away, you know, their parents say, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm going to a funeral tomorrow and uh, for a kid, 21 years old. And uh, his mom told me, I uh, went to the hospital when he was uh, on, on life support, pretty much he was brain dead. This was about two weeks ago. And his mom said, his, my son never reads books. And his dad came up to me. His dad was served the Gandak as a tech. And his dad came up to me and said the same thing because they're divorced. And he said, my kid never reads books. Both of them said, but they read your book. He read your, my son never reads books, but he read your book. And it inspired him and it did something to him. And, you know, going back to what you said, it's like, you never know how what you're going to do is going to affect that person's life, but also affect that person's life before they pass on to the other side. Yeah. That's the that's the kicker, you know. Man, that is wild. What happened to, to him? Yeah, it was a car accident, man. It was a car accident here in San Diego. Unfortunate, you know. It's uh, he wasn't drinking, he wasn't texting, none of that stuff. It was just you know, dark area turn, didn't hit another car, hit a pole, oh. and uh, yeah, yeah, he. Uh, I think it took thirty minutes for a car to come by because it was really late at night, and, and, and saw him and. Uh, yeah, he was put on life support. And uh, the blessing is, and I, you know, I'm sure his parents would appreciate me saying his name, Peyton, his Peyton Nurse. The blessing is uh, he's his organs, which is so interesting because I had this conversation with his mom about the film around, you know, when I was at the hospital, but his organs saved the lives of, uh, I'm going to say five people, his heart, wow. lungs, and both his kidneys. And, and I think it's not organ. So, um, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> Man, incredible, yeah. incredible. I mean, your story though, I mean, dang, it's crazy. <laughs> like this, uh, in this book right here, uh, I made some notes in it, but, uh, I mean, insanity. I mean, um, take us through the first part of it. Like Nigeria, you're there, your family has history. And, uh, I mean, it, it sounds like you're growing up in a pretty, I mean, that's what an interesting family to be born into. Yeah, yeah, rich family. And my so this my story starts with my dad. You know, my dad, my well, actually, my grandfather. My grandfather had like nine wives, seven or nine wives, something crazy. And he kept on having daughters. And my grandfather was a chief in the Yoruba tribe. So in Western culture, we refer to royalty as king, queen, prince, princess, duchess. By the way, you know, uh, uh, I know we we send our condolences to the royal family uh, for their loss of the queen. One well, in Western family, in Western culture, we refer to royalty as king, queen, prince, princess, Dutch, that sort of thing. Lord, in, in, in Nigerian culture and a lot of West African culture and African culture in general, royalty is referred to as chief. So my grandfather was a chief in the Yoruba tribe. So he was like a king uh, wow. in, 
from a tribe and, and, and he was trying to get an heir. <laughs> and so his wives kept on producing daughters. And then my father came, my father was the firstborn son. So he just naturally inherited the title of king and then along with our last name, which means, which Adelake, Ade means crown and Lake means above. And, and so it's like crown is supreme in Yoruba. And my name actually, Ade Remy, my full name is actually Ade Remy. Um, the crown has appeased me, so Remy has appeased me. And so my dad inherited the title of chief, and he also inherited, obviously, the last name. And his father, my grandfather, died when my dad was about eight years old. So my mother, my grandmother, you know, all the wives spread out, and my grandmother went down to the south of Nigeria, like near Lagos. And at the time, they were Christian missionaries that came to Africa. And they were not only teaching the Bible, but they were teaching science and math and literature, a lot of Western topics that are taught in school. And so my dad, he was a savant. He had memorized the Quran because my grandfather was, was Muslim. So he had already memorized the Quran by the time oh. he was eight years old. But he memorized the Bible and then he memorized, like he was able to memorize. He was a savant. He was just a, a genius. So much so that he ended up getting a full-ride scholarship to study engineering and architecture in London. And so by the time he came of age to go to college, and so he went to college early, um, got his bachelor's and master's degree, and then he just started building his, his businesses and his wealth and his name in the West. He was actually um, one of the first black men on the board of the British Financial Planning Council of Great Britain. He was one of the first black men on the board of the uh, uh, World Trade Center. His best friend was the architect of the World Trade Center. So when it came down, it was that connection that I had. This Japanese guy, I can't recall his name. Wow. And uh, after he built all of this success and greatness, all of these things in the West, he was, his focus was home. His focus mm. was Nigeria because he believed that Nigeria can be like the United States. It can be like the UK and these great nations because of the resources, the natural resources Nigeria has, cocoa. Uh, natural gas, oil in abundance, mm. and, and gold, and just other resources that the soil just produces. And so he went back to Nigeria and started a few businesses there. One of his main goals was to um, create a business sector, somewhat of a Wall Street. So he brought bought a product, plot of land in the 70s called Marico. And if I'm being long-winded, please feel free. No, to no, I love it. Um, he, uh, he bought a plot of land called Marico. There was a there was a coup and the military took over the government and that land was pretty much taken from him. And that was where he was going to build his Wall Street. Fast forward to the 80s, um, um, the, the government was reestablished back back to a democracy. Um, military coup was was kind of suppressed. And uh, my dad went to court. And when he went to court, the Nigerian federal government said to him, what do you want? Because we recognize that you did purchase, purchase that land for 10 million pounds, you know, back in the seventies. So what do you want that's equivalent to that? Would you like your money back? Would you like another piece of land? What do you want? And there was a lagoon off of the shoot off of the uh, coast of Lagos. And my dad said, I want the lagoon. <laughs> and, uh, and the government was like, what are you going to do with the lagoon? Because it was a swamp. It was just think of a, a trash build swamp like huh. you know when i was in nigeria right after i wrote the last part of my book in nigeria yeah. and you'll see these islands that are just trash islands and kids running around naked when i was there and uh and so my dad said i, I don't care i want that and he was a visionary so in his mind what he was thinking is if i buy something where there was never something no one could ever come back and say it was theirs huh. no government no military coup, no one could ever do that. And so he uh, 
he they gave him the swamp, the lagoon, and he uh, hired Dutch engineers, started dredging the foreshore, which in order to create a man-made island. And my dad was one of the first, I'm not going to say the first, but he was one of the first guys that came up with the concept of dredging the foreshore and creating a man-made island. He threw right. airports, part, I think a part of it is a man-made island. You have the Palm Islands in Dubai. Those are man-made islands where the foreshore was dredged. So he did that and he developed um, what it was called the Lagoon Development Project. It's now known as Banana Island. The island still exists. And uh, and he he started doing construction on the island. He signed deals with Marks and Spence, Disney, uh, tab offices, um, uh, um, McDonald's. I mean, it was this was supposed to be a big business. So just think, you know, like almost like Hollywood and a lot of film films and stuff are done in Hollywood and the film industry. He wanted everybody to be able to when they wanted to do business in Africa, come to Nigeria, come to this business sector, this financial sector. Mm. And uh, right after he, he uh, signed the contracts and uh, the land had fully formed, um, the Lagos state government came in and said, you can't, well, I'll back up for a second. So before all of this happens, when I came into the picture, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, before that, when I came into the picture, my mom, I, you know, I tell people all the time that my mom and my dad's story is a real coming to America story. It's because my dad, he was a, you know, he was a Nigerian prince. And my mom, she's a New Yorker, grew up, born and raised in New York City. She goes to the <laughs> Metropolitan Museum of Natural History one day. They meet. He charms her, tells her he's this chief. She's like, yeah, whatever, get away from me. And they end up falling in love and uh, get married five months later. And then my mom moves to Nigeria. Um, so so you know, my brother was born around this time when my dad was going, developing banana, uh, well, lagoon development project. And then a year later, I was born. So when I was born, I was born into wealth and riches. I mean, we traveled the world. We had nannies. We had cars. We had drivers. I mean, we, we had pictures of me and my brother on horses. We did live in a house. We lived on a compound right on, on Victoria Island, which is like the Beverly Hills or Coronado of, of, of Lagos. Um, I mean, fur coats, private schools. I mean, my dad would host lavish parties. I remember years after my father died, I found a letter from Ronald Reagan um, and this desk that, that Ronald Reagan himself had written to my dad because he would host these, these, these parties and have all these people from all these different expats and all these people from different backgrounds in, at these parties. He was just a very well-connected man and uh, charming man, you know, with this British accent, you know. And, uh, and I say that to say that that was the beginnings of my life. You know, that was all I knew. And then fast forward to you know, after the contracts and everything went through with the with the island and it was almost fully, it was pretty much developed, the land was developed and construction had begun. The uh, Lego state government came in and said that the federal government was never supposed to award you that land. Mm. And my dad was like, well, it wasn't any land. It was a swamp. And he said, well, it belongs to us. That's for sure. And they kind of came up with some mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is, and this speaks to the corruption of Nigeria. Nigeria has been, there's corruption in almost every government, but Nigeria has been a very ostensibly corrupt country. I mean, for a long period of time, even to this day, it's, it's very well known. A lot of people go into politics in Nigeria, you know, uh, even like here in the States, people want to be athletes or musicians or you know, that's their way to riches in Nigeria. A lot of people, the thing is to get into politics, become a governor or become, you know, a senator mm. because... You get people that go into politics poor and they come out billion, billionaires. Yeah. With a billion, with a billionaires, right? Yeah. And, and, and their district, and when they receive money uh, from the government to 
build better schools uh, or, you know, uh, uh, equip their military, only a portion of that money goes to equipping the school or, uh, or the military. Yeah. And majority of it goes into the pocket of politicians. So there's due to, they waited, the Nigerian government, Lagos state government waited until my dad done, did all the work and then they hit him with this claim. And the federal government, instead of jumping in and advocating for my dad, they just, you know, walked away. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad went to court and because all of his money and finances was wrapped up in this thing. My mother, being a wise American woman, she would tell my dad all the time, you know, bio, put money in the U.S. Let's buy a house in the U.S. I don't trust the Nigerian system. And if something happens here, we're not going to have anything. Mm. And my dad was so loyal to his country that wasn't loyal to him that he would tell my mom, my priority is my country. Once I get everything established and set up, we can buy all the houses and put all the money in the U.S. But right now, this is my priority. He was a very, and I don't want to use the word single-minded because that can come off disrespectful, but he was a very focused man. When there was something that he wanted to accomplish, he would, nothing was going to stop him or distract him from accomplishing it. And so, you know, but that was also his downfall Mm -hmm. because, you know, as my mom predicted, because all of his wealth was wrapped up in in the Lagoon Development Project, I mean, he had sold his art. I mean, mean, some of the things I won't go down the line, but we lost everything. And he died days later, you know, a few weeks later, very mysterious. You know, he was um, stressed out about everything that was going on and he went for a walk and got bit by a dog, uh, contracted rabies, went to the hospital to get some medication. Um, and there's a lot of craziness around it. I won't go down the details, but but he was given a bad medication. So he's essentially poisoned. And he took the medication and went to go take a bath. And the uh, last person that saw him alive was a mate and, and he, he died. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was my beginnings. <laughs> Dude. That's insanity. So do you think, uh, so you think there was something more nefarious besides just getting the wrong medication? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, a lot of people did not like my father. You know, a lot of people did not like my father, not even, you know, I'm, I'm not even talking about as related to the island. A lot of people didn't like my father before that, but then when he started doing what he was doing and he started getting all of this this money and, and headwinds and, and everything was developing and this he was getting this power that he created in and of itself. Nobody gave it to him. Mm-hmm. You know, people saw that as a threat. And uh, and then, you know, with, with, with the Lagoon Development Project, that was very, that island is worth billions of dollars. As a matter of fact, the Lagos, the, the Lagos state government offered my half-brother $10 million two years ago uh, for the island to, you know, to walk away from the case. Mm. And my brother was like, no, it's worth billions of dollars. Why would I take $10 million? And so, you know, it was very, very, very wealthy. And to this day, my father's our security guard, our family's security guard, you know, who we believe betrayed us as well is the custodian, custodian of the island, of banana Island. So they call him the Abba. He's, he drives around in this Jeep and he's like the guy who kind of, he doesn't own it, but he's the guy who's kind of like, you know, kind of in charge of the island for the, for the Lagos state okay. government. So it's crazy. Um, and so when you yeah. go back there, when you go back and you describe at the end of the book and or you're, you're saying, Hey, what are the odds of me being able to get this back or something? <laughs> Whoever you're talking to is like uh, about 0% or whatever they, whatever they say. But, uh, how crazy is that to go, to go back there and see that and just know how much of your family history and, uh, and really the path that you 
were set on yeah. is wrapped up in that. Like, well, how crazy is that? Just, just go back and see that. Yeah. It's crazy, but I know this might sound crazier. <laughs> I'm grateful that things happen the way they happen because I, I would not be the man I am today. Mm. If I, you know, I have had, my dad was married 10 years before he married, before he met my mom. And uh, so I have about three half siblings. Mm. And I'm gonna tell you, they all went to boarding school in the UK and they're doing it. They were still live in London. And they didn't want to have anything to do with me and my brother. To this day, I only have one of the siblings who had, who's had contact with me and my brother, John, he's in the book as well. And, but the other two hated my mom and they despised my brother and I. But they're completely different people, you know, very posh, very, you know, everything was kind of handed to them, you know, and yeah. because they were around their, their adult life, they were, they grew up with the riches. They got, went to boarding school, their college was paid for. They had all my dad's connections to get great jobs. You know, I have one brother who's an accountant. I have a, you know, another sister, well, she's, she's somewhat she got out of jail recently in the UK. It was a big story a few years ago, but they all lived a completely different life. And I guarantee that if I, if I, if my dad didn't die, I would not be the man I am today, mm. you know? So uh, I know that might sound crazy, but I'm kind of happy the way things turned out. Wow. And when he uh, passed over, were you guys in Africa or in New York? That? Uh, we, were, we were a little bit in between. So we, we had just left. Africa. I mean, we had just left Africa for the U.S. for like a small little holiday, me and my brother and my mother. And my dad had flown to the States. He flew there. So he got bit by the dog, got the medication, didn't take the medication, flew to Germany, did a meeting up there, flew to New York. So my brother and I then flew back to Nigeria. We were supposed to fly back to Nigeria to be, to be back with them and for school and all that stuff. And then uh, he, that's when he took the medication finally and, you know, died. But yeah, man, did you go back for funeral and that stuff, or did you guys stay in the no, states? No, yeah, my mom, my mother, she uh, she didn't want my brother and I to go, you know. And uh, my mom's a very wise woman, and and I think it was for our benefit. You know, I'll, I'll never forget the day she told my brother and I that our dad died. Um, she put my brother on one side of this red couch and me on the other side, and you know, she just said, "Hey, your dad has passed, and he's not." coming back. And she said it in such a very calm way that we didn't understand. We didn't get it. Like, it was just like, okay, we're going to go back to playing because we didn't understand death. We were too young. And then she had kept it together in such a great way that we didn't think anything was wrong. And so, you know, my, you know, my mom did a really, really good job of masking the reality of what had happened. And, and, yeah. and Wild. protection was not having us go to the funeral. Wow. Know. Your dad, you know, Man, so. I mean, that's what we talk about Nigerian born Bronx raised. And so yeah, now yeah, yeah. your formative years kind of, kind of start here. You're still young, yeah. but you're now it's, it's Bronx the whole time. Is it the same place? Do you, or do you move around a little bit? Same place, man. Same place, bro. Uh, you know, my mom is still in the same apartment. Um, oh, no kidding. Yeah, I'm trying to get her out. She's trying to get us. That's a whole nother story in and of itself. But, uh, yeah, man, Bronx. <laughs> yeah, you talk a little about Bronx history, you know. Yeah. So, you, I mean, you were kind of in that. What's uh, where did you when did you start uh, kind of identifying with the Bronx? Does that happen young, or is it just like, hey, I'm just in another, I'm in a new city? Or when do you realize, hey, this is the Bronx, and there's history here, and you become connected to that? Man, that's a great question. I would. Ah, oh, man. I mean. 
I didn't really realize what had happened to my dad in the life and the transition until I was about eight years old. But as far as like when I really realized that the, the history of the Bronx, that had to be a little bit later, I would say. Like, mm-hmm. um, but um, I was so immersed in the environment that I, I just think that unconsciously it just became a part of who I was. Yeah. Bronx is a very, very, very hard place. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a very savage place, you know. Um, and and when you're when you're in it and you grow up in it, it just almost becomes normal to you. <laughs> until you leave, you know, yeah. which was something I never thought would ever happen to me. And then you look back and you're just like, how did I get through this place? And then you tell people, hey, I'm from the Bronx. They're like, you're from the Bronx? <laughs> like, yeah. Really from the Bronx? So. Yeah. Oh, I did want to ask you about one other thing. And there's, is there, there about Nigeria and, uh, it's a quote that you have in here and it says, uh, every day is for the thief. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a corrupt corruption saying. Yep. Man. I mean, that just speaks to everything that you just talked about. Yeah. Uh, no. And, and so I, mean, I remember, you know, you know, sorry to jump ahead a little bit, but when I flew into Nigeria, finished writing a book, as soon as I got off the plane, the customs officials said, do you have a gift? Do you have a gift for me? You ah, know, a gift. And, uh, oh, yeah. And that meant do you have money for me to be able to get through customs? Um, you know, there was another time when when we were actually when I was leaving Nigeria, I was with uh with uh, with my, uh, one of my brothers, my half brothers who still lives there, and uh he uh we got pulled over and the cops raised the AK, you know me, I'm a frog man, dude. So I'm like I'm ready to I'm ready to get out the car and you know I, I'm, I'm amped up and my brother put his hand on my leg and he's like like don't do it right it's not worth it mm. and we had to give this guy money to be able to get to the airport okay. you know so that every day is for the thief it's, even the kids man the kids will get you on the streets it's just so much a part of the culture um, this which is it's so sad. And it's so it's frustrating for me, especially after, you know, seeing what my father went through and that that was over 30 years ago, you know, mm-hmm. um, 87. I mean, that was almost 40 years ago, you know, and it's still like that. Nothing has changed. And uh, it is what it is. Though. Man. And where do you when do you start realizing the Stark Conference? Because you're pretty young uh, right. now in the Bronx. And maybe if you were, let's say, 13, 14, 15, 16, you'd be more aware of the stark differences between how you grew up in Nigeria, going to these parties, walking downstairs. I love how you talk about sneaking downstairs and avoiding your mom. And so your dad can kind of, you know, talk about you and uh, show you off to his friends type thing. And before you go off to bed again, but, uh, at age five, six, are you still so young that you're so adaptable that you just do that? Or are you like, man, remember those parties we used to have? What happened to those things? Or, you know, what happened to all those nannies or what happened to that cool car and the horseback rides and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. Like, do you just like at age five, six, seven, do you, do you realize that? Or is it just, Hey, just going to adapt now. Something. No, new. no, no. My mother, I always give credit to my mom because she did a fantastic job of masking the reality of what had happened. Mm. You know, we had, you know, the apartment that we had, we lived in was small, but she made sure that it was pristine. Mm. It was clean. We had this big bookcase, which we still have with all of these books and African literature. Our apartment was peppered with my dad's art, mm. you know, uh, that he had collected over the years. And my mom would try her best to cook the good food for us. So she and I say all that, say like, when you're that young, you, even an apartment is 
the world to you because it's so big you're so yeah. small even that that's right. like everything to you and that was my world and my mom did a really good job mm. of protecting us and i remember we had this car and, and it did, got broken into many times but i didn't really realize this until so over years later and she would we would get in the car and just drive to, to manhattan Right. So it was like, we're not going to get on the train and, and we're not going to go walk down the streets. We're going to get in a car and we're going to jump on a major vegan highway. And then we're going to cross over to the Cross Bronx Expressway and we're going to get to uh, we're going to get to Manhattan. We're going to get to a nice part of town. Yeah. And my mom, you know, she would work multiple jobs to expose my brother and I to the other side of life. Mm-hmm. And to remind us of where we came from and what we're destined to become, mm-hmm. she would she would take jobs at art galleries and museums just to be able to take my brother and I for free. Wow. She would save her pennies, like and I and I, I literally mean pennies in order to be able to take us to a movie because she saw the movies as art. Uh, to take us to a play, I remember the first play I ever saw was um, it was either it was a uh, uh, showboat showboat. And she took us to see bringing the noise, bringing the funk, and, and and she would just expose it. She would make us read, you know, books about Africa, the, the art books that my dad had on 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 um uh, that we my, my mom kept that was on the bookcase. My mom would make us go through them, and she would make us you know read New York Times articles and write reports. Again, she created even at a young age, like you know, six years old, she had us sitting at the coffee at the table, dinner table, writing, you know. And so again, she created this this world that that protected us, that insulated us from what was going outside. But when you when we went outside, as we got older and started to be able to venture off on our own, that's when the revelation came. Mm. And that was for me when I was about eight years old. Okay. Because I just remember being in the apartment, you know, and there were a number of things that led up to that. You know, one, you know, I was able to walk to the corner store by myself and walk up to the corner store, crackheads walking through DeVoe Park. There's crackheads in the park. There's, Gang members over here is this. Okay, I'm going to go to this store and there's dudes in mafia suits. I didn't even know what the mafia was, but these dudes, these Italians with these suits on, you know, in the big collar shirts going into the stores and collecting money, walking out with, you know, a, a stack of money from the guy who owns the bodega, you know? And, and I'm seeing this stuff and then my mom, you know, she she can't pay the rent. So I'm going with her to the rental office and watching her beg for an extra few days to pay the rent, to make the money to pay the rent. And then my mom would get my brother and I borrow ivory soap and say, hey, I can't afford detergent. Wash your underwears and socks and clothes out in the sink and hang them on the shower pole to dry. And as those things happen more frequently, mm. and as I ventured off on my own, that's when the reality came. And I was just like, what? This is not Africa. <laughs> this is this is not the life that my dad had for us before. What what is this? And I remember just you know I shared in my book just breaking out and crying over my dad's picture, you know, with this photo of my dad. Because and my mom came in the room and she was just like, "What's going on?" And I said to her, "We don't have anything because Dad's not here. But if Dad was here, we would have a better life." And uh, that's when it, that's when it hit me. I'll never forget. You know, I was in yeah. And you're very entrepreneurial from an early age though. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about that in the in the book too. I mean, uh you start like a in a business essentially. <laughs> Got some scam some scams going on. Um I mean, did you did you avoid some of the more, I guess, hardcore dangerous parts of growing up there? Or did you 
intentionally or did you just go down this path of trying to create and scam and, and, and hustle? And like, what was that like those years before, between, uh, let's say age eight and then, uh, into high school when you get a little, little older through high school. Yeah. You know, I was, I didn't care for me. It was just like money, power, respect, whatever I got to do to get it. And I, you know, I, I blame it on the culture because growing up in the inner city, and this goes for my opinion, almost every inner city, especially in the country, especially when we're talking about the nineties, you know, hip hop culture had a, a strong hold on, on kids, street culture, thug culture, thug life, all of that stuff. And, you know, I think it's like 70% of African-American um, kids will grow up in a home without a father. And, uh, you know, me not having my father, I'm, wanted to find a father just naturally that just instinctively I wanted to find a man to show me how to be a boy, how to freaking shave, how to, you know, what does it mean to love a woman, all of these different things. And, and I looked to, I was driven to the streets for that. Mm. And, 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 and I immersed myself in it, you know, from, from, from you know, everything I heard through the music, if somebody disrespects you, punch them in the face. I fought a lot. You know, I didn't care. I mean, my, dude, I mean, you know the story. There's this story in a book where I almost I got beat. I was like, I can't remember, about nine, ten years old. I got beat bad by two dudes on the basketball court over, you know, something stupid. You know, and these one dude was just out of prison and about 35 years old, you know, and, and they, they could have killed me, right? And, you know, I, I was just so, that was my world. Fight, make money, get women. Fight, make money, get women. And then as I grew older, I was just like, I don't want to fight. I just want to make money and get women. But if somebody disrespects me across the line, then I'll do what I have to do. And uh, I didn't avoid the, 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 the evils. I didn't avoid the bad side of the tracks because mm-hmm. I grew up on the bad side of the tracks, you know? Um, you know, I started out stealing from my mom and that progressed to stealing from stores. I progressed to stealing from jobs. And then that progressed to selling drugs. And then that progressed to, you know, running high level scams, you know, the cell phone scam that I was doing. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, what it, there was a purpose behind it. And it was, in my opinion, it was affirmation. You know, it was getting that affirmation from people because I didn't get it from my dad. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that a lot with athletes, in my opinion, you know, specifically, you know, you know, football, you know, African-American athletes, football players, basketball players, you know, who, you know, get into these sports, they get all of this money and then they're going to the strip club and making it red or then, you know, they go into, you know, buying all of these crazy cars and then giving money to all their friends. In my opinion, and I could be wrong, I think a lot of it is they're seeking that affirmation, mm. that pat on the back that they never got from my dad. And I can say that from experience because everything that I did, even though I, I didn't realize it at the time, I was trying to make money to get affirmation. So my boys would say, you're the man. So girls could like me. So, you know, all of these things, you know, and I started these rackets for my sneaker, you know, hustle, then, you know, to all of these different things I did. And when I really look back through wise lenses, it all boils down to, I was crying out for a father to say, you're good. You did good, son, you know, and but I was seeking that from the wrong fathers. And, uh, yeah, man, sorry, sorry. I know that was a long guess. Oh man. It, it, it uh, goes back to what we're talking about, popular culture. 
I mean, you talk about, right. we talked about it earlier and here it is hip hop culture. It's ha it has an influence. Um, yes. there's, that's why it's called the power of popular culture. Um, you know, there's, uh, like for, for the, for my books, I try to, people might think they're just grabbing a, a thriller or a spy novel or a political thriller off the shelf, but I try to weave in a few other things there because, yeah. you know, I, I understand the popular culture cause it, you know, it hit me through all the books that I was reading, all the movies that I was watching, all those things made an impact on me growing up. I'm looking up to, uh, to Sylvester Stallone playing Rambo. I'm looking up to Arnold Schwarzenegger and Predator and Commando. I'm reading all these books, fiction and non as well. And those things are having an, an impact on me. Um, and then same thing. I mean, what, what you're talking about. Um, and then we have another that more similar to what I'm talking about it is Michael Bay's film, Bad Boys. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Bad Boys. Yeah. yeah. And that was, a, that was, that made an impact. A huge impact. Huge impact. I'll never forget. I was 15. Um, my mom took my brother because we, we used to watch Martin's TV show all the time. Martin. Uh-huh. Great show. I love that show. Great show. Great show. And my, I would mimic Martin all the time. So when the movie got announced, we saw the trailer. It was just like the Porsche and these dudes with the guns. I was like, mom, we got to see it. And my mom took my brother and I to go see it. And bro, I was so glued to the screen. Uh, it changed my life because that, again, that film showed me that I could be something other than, than, than just a drug dealer or an athlete. It showed me that I could be a hero in some way. Mm. It really, really did. Cause I never saw my, I saw myself in these characters. Cause here you had these two guys who look like me and then they seem to in some way come from the same side of the streets as me, but then they also, acted like me in a sense. And I was just like, I saw myself in them and I was like, I can be that. Like I can be a hero in some way. And that film train, I, I will never forget, dude, I bought the bootleg version. I never told Michael Payne. <laughs> I brought the, I thought I watched the movie like twice or three times in the theater. I can't remember. I bought a bootleg, a bootleg uh, cassette tape where somebody went to the movie theater with a recorder and I watched that religiously and, and, and memorized the lines and everything. And I was just so enthralled with it, with it, mm -hmm. because it showed me a, a, a side that I didn't think I could see. And again, you got to remember, I never thought I would make it out of the Bronx, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and I never thought I could be anything else other than, you know, athlete, drug dealer, or, you know, you know, just stick around and work some local job. That's all I knew. That was the world to me. And that film really opened up my eyes. And then fast forward a year later, I was 16 and The Rock came out and that was it. That's when I, you know, I was just like, you know, underwater vehicles and fake SDVs. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but the underwater vehicles coming out into the into the shower scene and uh -huh. the shower shoot out and the spin and just yeah. the, the the strength of the guys and the black suits and just the coolness and the long hair and all that. And I said to myself, I said, if I ever turn my life around, if I could ever turn my life around, which I don't think I will, I think I'm gonna be here forever. But in, a, in an alternate universe, I would do that. I would be a seal. I said that. I said that to myself. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you know, <laughs> the rest eventually came to came into place. You know, man. Yeah, I love it how you guys connect later on. But uh, man, that movie in Bad Boys, I mean, that was a different style of cinematography coming right. in. I mean, it was a you know 
music video plus uh, action plus comedy plus, you know plus engaging characters that you that are likable and I mean it was just explosions good bad guys Tay Leone like it was it was just awesome it was this amazing mixture and then uh, the Rock of course friggin amazing oh, yeah. love the yeah. rock uh denny chalker was my command master chief at buds when i showed up and he's oh, in that yeah, yeah so he's in that he's in that scene you know getting after it <laughs> yeah a few of those guys were i think four of them i think all of them were tv guys like except for the, 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 the spanish guy yeah who shot in the head because he like i gotta go up yeah yeah uh, and, and then the dude who played the seal i forgot his name he played the seal in navy seals too didn't michael bean yeah. yeah michael bean yeah, yeah he's played and in the abyss he's played a seal yeah yeah that's right that's right and my and he was a, a gnarly in aliens but uh but yeah all those i think the rest of the guys other than those three were, were actual frogmen yeah 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 uh Mike Mayer was in there, a few other guys, but, uh, man, that was when, what a great, what a great film. And you see that and you, so you see that as a, as a possibility or like, Hey, if I join the military, that's what I, what I want to do. Or was it more like, Hey, how do you get there? Like, what was, no, uh, what were your next steps? No, it was, it was, if, cause you remember, I'm still selling drugs. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm I'm, I'm I'm leaving movie theater to go sell drugs. You know what I mean? yeah. so, like, so it was just like, Oh yeah, whatever. It's like me saying right now, like, dude, like, I'm gonna run for president in ten years. Nice. That's what happened. The likelihood yeah. of that happening is slim to none. That's I'm just trying to connect it to to yeah. have that moment. It was it was just a throwaway thing. It's okay. not really gonna happen. And so you know, I, I went back into the streets, barely finished high school, uh, graduated on time. And then after high school, uh, you know, I went full fledged, more hustling, making money, you know, graduated into the cell phone thing, which was making me even way more money, um, bringing in thousands of dollars a week. I was funneling that money into my record company. I started a record company. I still keep the CD on my desk. Hey, look at that. Nice. That's me right there. Dang. Um, I, 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 was, I was laundering. Ran out, so I ain't got to worry about going to prison for this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, and yeah, that was my focus. That was my goal. You know, was to make money and then make it in some way in the, in the music industry and in the entertainment industry. And uh, fast forward, I got involved in a deal one day with a drug dealer who went bad. Won't go into all the details on the book. And uh, my life was threatened. My mom's life was indirectly threatened. And that was a huge wake up call for me. Mm. For me, that was like. When I was a kid, my mom used to spank us relentlessly, but not for no reason. Like she wasn't an abuser. Like if we cursed or we freaking lied to her or we like broke something in the house or something like that, or we did something that was like totally out of line, she would give it to my brother and I. And, you know, I know people think differently of it now, but what that did for me was it is still this concept of consequences for actions. Like, 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 I always instinctively, because of what my mom did and how she raised me, I knew that at some point I'm going to get spanked. Mm. Probably at some point. And if I don't stop, that spanking can, can lead to deadly consequences. Mm. So when that situation happened with that drug dealer, that was my spanking. That was my wake-up call. That was my, if I do not stop, I'm going to end up dead in prison. And then at the same time, there were people going to federal prison for what I was doing. Mm -hmm the office I was working out of. And so all of those things collectively, and I was able to kind of skate out, sneak out before I got, before I got that caught up with me, that was just like, hey, you gotta stop. Mm -hmm. So 
I made him his money back. This was December 2001, about three months after 9-11. Made him his money back. And then after that, I was just like, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, from January to June, I just I did nothing. Like, I, I, had, I didn't want to go to college. Um, I didn't want to work at McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I didn't know what to do. And then fast forward to June is when I felt the call. I felt this voice, this presence tell me, you need to get out of here. You need to join the military. And uh, and that was, I fought against it because at the time, you know, I hated the police and I associated anybody in a uniform as the police, whether you were a firefighter, EMT, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, you were the police to me. And I, I couldn't stand the police. And, mm. and um and again, that all came from the culture that I grew up in. Um, but as I thought about it, I was just like, what else do you have left? Mm. What else do you have? Nothing else wrong for you. And so I just remember after battling with that thought for a few minutes, I, I, I decided, screw let's go see what will happen. And I went to the Marine Corps recruiter's office first, sat there for 15 minutes. And uh, no one showed up, walked out, went to the Navy recruiter's office. There was a gorgeous Navy recruiter there by the name of Tiana Reyes. And my naive mind, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get the Navy. I'm going to get this girl. <laughs> and uh, she was from the Bronx, so she knew I was a damn fool. So <laughs> she played along and then uh, you know, had me take the practice, practice ASVAC test because I told her I wanted to be a SEAL. I didn't qualify to be a SEAL, but I did qualify to get the Navy. And she ran my background, found out I had two warrants after my arrest. Um, and I was petrified because I knew, like I said, there were people going to federal prison for what I was doing. I didn't know what the warrants were for. And, uh, I got up, got ready to run out of the recruiter's office. And, uh, she said, where are you going? I said, I'm getting out of here. She said, do you have a suit and tie? And I said, no. She said, do you have a, um, or some nice pants and a, and, a, and, a, and a shirt? And I said, why? She said, shut up. Just answer my question. And I said, yeah, I think I can find something. She said, come back tomorrow. And I was like, for what? She said, just shut up and come back tomorrow. And I came back the next day and she was in her dress, Navy dress uniform. And she took me to both judges, a judge in New Jersey, a judge in New York. And uh, she advocated on my behalf. She was just like, listen, this kid, he's made mistakes, but he has potential. 9-11 just took place nine months earlier. He's trying to turn his life around after, after war and join the Navy. Can you clear his record? You know, because he can't join the military with a record. And both judges unanimously expunged my record. And, uh, you know, that was that was huge for me. And then she went a step further and fudged the paperwork to, you know, she pushed everything through the legal system and fudged the paperwork to get me into the Navy. And, and, if, and if it wasn't for her, you know, dude, I'd be freaking screwed. And that's why I try to dedicate my life and everything that I do, whether it's the human trafficking thing, whether it's my school and all these other things to give back because like bigger than what she did for me, because if she didn't do that for me, Dude, I'd be dead on prison. I'd be dead on prison. As a matter of fact, the guy, Roger Brown, who I used to hustle with, is in, still in prison to this day. You know, I talk to him all the time. We used to sell drugs together, phones together, everything. He's still sitting in prison. And uh, I, and she, she saved my life. And the lesson that I got out of her act was, one, you know, though people make mistakes, that doesn't mean that they don't have potential. And two, Everybody, you, you need to give if, if other people are willing to give you a second chance, you got to be willing to give yourself a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. And you can't give up on yourself, you know, because you never know what's right around the corner. And uh, that was my that was my path into the Navy. And, and she died two years later. Uh, and, and that crushed me when I found out. But she 
she died two years after, you know, getting and you didn't find out till a long time later though. I out until I was, I finished writing a book, you know, I finished writing a book and I was like, damn, I couldn't find Tiana. And I was like, I couldn't remember her last name. I couldn't, I could remember Tiana, I couldn't remember her last name. And I, and I found my military, cause I got out, I was out to Vania, I found my military service record and I, I saw all her signatures on it. And I was like, that's her name. And I Googled it. And, um, her this memorial page popped up mm-hmm. and i was just like oh. because i wanted her to see how her decision changed my life man and not just changed my life how it helped you know in return i was allowed to bless other people i wanted her to see it and it just it crushed me that she wasn't able to see what her decision did you know and um but the good side of it is, um, like, I was with her brother. I premiered, you know, my short film at the uh, the Human Trafficking Film at the Bronze Lens Film Festival um, about two weeks ago. And her brother came, you know, Mario. Wow. And, uh, you know, me and him were tight. And, you know, he was in a similar situation. He was, got charged with a misdemeanor. And she was, she was in the Navy. She took leave, flew to the Bronx and took him to the Air Force recruiter, worked out a deal to get him into the Air Force. And then her brother told me that, she would drive around the Bronx, the area that she grew up in, and 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 drive up the drug dealers who she grew up with and say, listen, it's nothing for you. Come with me. Like, come join me. And she would recruit people into the into the Navy. He was like a robber. Like, she was insane. So I'm cool with her daughter. Her daughter's like my daughter. As a matter of fact, my daughter is named after her and her daughter. So my so uh Tiana's daughter's name is Sierra, and Tiana's name is Tiana. Wow. Uh, and obviously last name Ray, my daughter's name is Sienna Ray. So wow. that's a way to get back to oh. the family. But man. Yeah, man, it's, it's horrible. And she passed away of something pretty rare. Yeah, super rare autoimmune disease. Super, super rare. Yeah. Yeah. She was young. She was like 30. Um, I think she was like 31. Mm-hmm. Something like that. 32. Man. That's so tough. But she gave, I mean, that's, and that's pretty good. I mean, for someone, she couldn't have been, what was she like, an uh, uh, E5, E6? I think she was an E5. I'm pretty sure she was an E5. Yeah. She was an E5 or C6 for, for sure. And those are pretty solid moves for E5 to be to be making, fudging paperwork yeah. and going to, in front yeah. of judges and making things happen, you yeah. know? I think she knew, she knew that nobody else would have given me a shot. Dude. I think she, I think... The Bronx, again, the Bronx is a real rough area, you know, and uh, I think she knew that she, she saw something in me. That's one. I'm, 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 I know she saw something in me, but then she also knew that I see something in this kid. Nobody else is going to give a shot. Yeah. Let me put my anchors on the line. You Amazing. know, let me put my, you know, chevrons on the line. Excuse me. Amazing. And, she, and it paid off, you know. Incredible. Incredible. Cheers. And so in you go and off you go to boot camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to boot camp with <laughs> went to Navy boot camp, and uh, it was funny. Uh, first night, all of these kids from all across the country were crying in their racks, and I'm 19, going on 20, laughing. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, boot camp was cool. And then uh, when I was at boot camp, a seal came, and uh, you know they had these little uh, I forgot what they call them, but they're these auditorium type sessions, and the seal came to my boot camp division, and and he showed this video of seals jumping from planes and scuba diving and like shooting guns and like <laughs> doing all this long here and stuff. I'm like, oh, I want to do that. And then after he showed the video, he's like, who wants to scream for buds? 
And then, uh, you know, you got to be able to swim and they listen all stuff. You ask, ask what's going to be. And I did not qualify in any area. <laughs> I didn't know how to swim. <laughs> I didn't have an academic ASVAB score. I couldn't do one push-up, you know, probably 10 push-ups. And I couldn't do, I couldn't do pull-ups or any of that stuff. And so I just remember just all those guys in my division, you know, leaving and um, just me who wanted to go to Bud's and me just sitting there with the rest of the guys who didn't want to go. And I was just like crushed. I was just like, I'm going to freaking get there. You know, Daniel, you know, Dirty Daniel Corbett? No. Uh-uh. He's a team guy five. He, he was at, he was at Dan that too, but he, uh, he, uh, he was in my boot camp division, which still friends to this day. We were talking the other day, but he was in my boot camp division and, 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 and out of everybody in my boot camp division, only me and me and him were the only two who eventually who, who made it through Buds. No right? kidding. Uh, it was a bunch of guys that left that day. Uh-huh. But, uh, but yeah, man, that crushed me. But that was like, that was my motivation. That was my, the best thing that has, the best thing that happens to me in life is rejection. I love, like, I have a love-hate relationship with rejection. You know, we all hate rejection, right? And, and especially being a writer and a writer in Hollywood, you get rejected <laughs> all the time. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, but it fuels me. Yeah. Like it's become like my fire. And so I graduated boot camp and went to my first command, Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton. And dude, I just put, I would run three miles to the pool for my barracks, jump in the shallow and try to figure it out, run three miles back to the barracks, you know, watch the Buds 234 video, watch how the guys worked out. And I created workouts. I bought the ads back the dummies book and I checked into my command in January 2003. And I checked out in January 2004. Buds, so like you know, I, I I just I wasn't playing, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's that. wild. And you see tears of the sun somewhere in there too, right, oh, Antoine? Yeah, 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 yeah. So great. I was a fool. That was a street side of me that didn't work out. You know, there was a lot of times where I wanted to go back to the old Remy, but I I wanted to prove uh, Tiana's decision right. You know that she made the right decision. And, uh, but they were just one, was one time when Tears in the Sun came out, never forget. And uh, I wanted to see the movie so bad, but I was on duty. And I had been <laughs> duty driver like multiple times, maybe seven, eight times. I had already had orders to Buds at this point too. And uh, I had seen the movie multiple times. I'm sorry, I had seen the trailer multiple times. Yeah. And, uh, but excuse me, I was on duty. And I had duty multiple times and never got called for the duty drive. It was always, I just stayed in my barracks and never anything happened. And so I was like, you know what? It's Friday night, just came out. I know I'm on duty, but nobody's going to call. I, I never get the call for duty mm-hmm. drive. So I go drive all the way down. I'm, I'm such a fool. I drive all the way down to the Gasland District in San Diego from Camp Pendleton, which is like an <laughs> hour, like hour and a half. It's a track, yeah. Yeah, and, and, um, and I get in there. The credits start rolling, the opening credits start, and the duty freaking phone or page or whatever it is. I can't remember page or phone. Mm. And it was, uh, it was, uh, I was, I had a task. I had to go pick up medication, but here's a crazy thing. The medication I had to pick up. Balboa. Was that Balboa. <laughs> right there, which is like yeah. five minutes. Which was five minutes, five minutes away. So that was my saving grace. I left the movie theater, got the medication, raced up there, didn't answer the phone or page at all. And then I got chewed out when I got there and uh, the lady was like, what are we doing? Because this particular person hated my guts anyway. 
And, uh, you know, she was just like, where were you? I was just like, ah, oh, I fell asleep. And she's like, well, why don't you answer the phone? I was like, well, when I woke up, I heard your voicemail. So I figured out, oh, I'll just go down there and get the medication. She's like, oh, you're in trouble. You didn't take the duty. Here you go, blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, whatever. I got the medication. Go take it. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 I could have gone to freaking mass for that, but... Because it worked in my favor because that lady hated me so much that she always like picked at every little thing that I did. So when that situation actually happened, like none of the higher ups believed her. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, I got out. Yeah. nice, nice. And then you make it to buds. And then make it to buds. Yeah, make it to buds, and uh, that was eye opening. Uh, it was you know it was. Uh, Kicking the nuts experience, the cold. I remember checking it in January. So I had that nice, so did I. Yep. Yeah, it was uh, it was miserable. Uh, sucked at swimming. <laughs> uh, I, I had I had I, I didn't know before I went to Buds. I thought you just had to pass a five hundred yard swim. Oh. I didn't know you had to do these time swims. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, was it two uh, nautical mile ocean swims you do every yeah, nautical yeah. miles man yeah, yeah. so I every week every week one a week and at that time you just had to pass one in each phase oh really and, uh, yeah yeah they changed it um the second time i was in buzz they changed it to 50 percent. you got to pass 50 percent of your time evolutions but the first huh. time was to pass one swim in, in first phase one run and one old course in first phase Wow. And then and they change it to 50. You have to pass at least 50% of your run swings and old courses. Oh man. Interesting. I think ours was you'd fail one. You could make it up, I think. Yeah. And they had a makeup, I think. And then, but if you failed two, then you went to a review board. And if they didn't like you, then you're out. If they did, you're like, Hey, like, Hey, work on your swims, work on your old course, work on your run, whatever. And try to try to keep you in. Um, yeah. but I think that, yeah, oh, that's wild. That's, that's different. Yeah, man. Yeah, that was that was that was crazy. But I failed every swim. <laughs> I did. I was I, I was swimming. Who was your swim buddy? Did they put you? Oh, I mean, well, they do yeah, it by times. Not. You know, you do like what do you do? Some swim when you first get there, and they yeah, time yeah, everybody, yeah. and then they just take the fastest, and then just kind of just go down the the line. So yeah. were you guys the two bottom, like the two last? No, no, no. Actually, I had a guy named Peterson. It's so funny because Peterson was, you know, there's not many black dudes and buds, right? They go to buds, right? It's like three black dudes and buds. And I remember uh, in my buds class, and I remember JJ, he's the black instructor. We, because we, we used to always be, end up together on condition runs in some crazy way. And he's always like, then you guys are again, the three Negroes back together again. He was just saying that all the time. And I remember when we, when we did, Peterson was my swim buddy. JJ was like, what are you, why are you two swimming together? Like, why are you swimming together? But he was a better swimmer than I was. He was a way better swimmer than okay. I was. And, uh, but yeah, I, I was swimming 120 minutes, two mile time ocean swims. And you know, the passing time was 85 minutes. 80, yeah, I was going to say like 85, 80, and I 75, like, I think. Yeah. And the instructors, you know, if they wouldn't pull me because they were hoping that I would quit. And at the end of every swim, I was either hypothermic or borderline hypothermic. Yeah. And so, like, they thought I was going to quit at some point. <laughs> but I kept on showing up day after day. But I, I didn't have a problem with anything else. Like, drown pool training, not tying, 50 meter underwater swim. It was just those two mile time ocean swims were my kryptonite. Yeah. And so, fast forward, I get to, um, I get to, you know, make it through the first two, three weeks, three weeks of phase and then get to hell week. Before I started hell week, I was spitting up blood. I had pneumonia in sight, but it's a corman. I was already a corman. So I oh, before hell week, you're already spitting up. Yeah, I was already spitting up blood and I hit it because I knew that right. 
I knew the signs and symptoms. I knew what was going on in my body and, and I felt like the crackles in my chest. So I knew that if I reported it to Bud's Medical oh. that would be pulled and have to go through day one. And I was like, I've already went through three weeks of a freaking freezing cold winter first phase. I don't want to do that again. Oh. And so I, so I hit it, went into Hell Week. Uh, and then Tuesday of Hell Week, more to the story, I hit the wall. I mean, I, I mean, I, I literally hit the wall. I mean, it's, uh, again, it's all in the book, but pneumonia, site, rhabdo, uh, my core temperature dropped to 88.7. Uh, almost, uh, yeah, I was down, ended up in the Bible ICU for, for like a week and change. And Whoa. then, yeah, it was, it was a bad situation. And you had to tell them, right? You had to just like self-diagnose. Yeah, well, well, what happened was they, <laughs> there's a lot more to the story, but in short, after I, when I went tits up, um, they did a full on check and they did, they, did they, I think they had the x-ray machine at Bud's medical at the time, the quick one. And they did that and they saw my lungs and they was like, dude, this guy's lungs are shredded, shredded wheat. And I was spitting up jello, like jello, it was like thick jello. Oh. And that's when they rushed me from Bud's medical at that. Cause this was, I think this was during base tour. So then they rushed me for base tour, Bud's medical, Bud's medical. I think they did an x-ray, a quick exam. And then it went from there to Bob Ola. And I was there. You know, I was there for for a while, man. Um, yeah, that's pretty serious. Yeah, and I'll never forget, dude. Like after I got released from the hospital, went back to Buzz. I was like, oh man, I hope that they're gonna they're gonna roll me forward. <laughs> I, I know. I love how you write that in the book. You're like hoping they yeah. roll you forward because sometimes they do that if you make it to I don't know Thursday like Wednesday night something or like that. Like, yeah. And Master Chief Hoffman came in. He's like, that's that's what I'm talking about, man. God is gonna go to the die. That's what we look for. We see they're gonna go into their dead and they let's see keep going. It's like I'm glad you didn't quit. Cause I struck with her, I was thinking. So he's like, I'm glad you didn't quit. And then uh and you're like, oh man, he's gonna roll me forward. Yeah. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and then and they, but he stopped and I was like, all right, here's a coming see what you for and started talking. I was like, he's gonna tell them to roll forward. He's like, he's like, yeah, man, great job. I'm glad you didn't quit. And then he was like, cause a guy died, and then the reason why they, they came in and talked because because uh Veteran Rob Veteran died in front of me in my class. Yeah, during the conditioner run. So like that class, like at two five zero, and so um, so we they already had a Bud's fatality, and I think everybody was nervous, and I think Bud's medical was under a lot of scrutiny after that because like they were like, "Yo, you almost died." Uh, and as a matter of fact, a kid just died like two weeks ago from sight. Yeah, Bud's. I read that. Right, right. Yeah, I read so, that. So um, so uh, so CG Ford was like, uh, he was like, "Yeah, dude, did a great job," but uh. That's start day one all over again. I was like, oh. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, man, started day one all over again. But, you know, the cool thing was I was in Bud's with a 250. Was a, Mikey Monsoor was in my boat crew, Metal Wong, great dude. Um, uh, Workman, you know, Extortion 17, great dude. He was in my boat crew. You know, Ryan Joe, you know, was uh, was in 250, great dude. You know, so, so it's like, you know, it sucked. And, you know, but I got to meet so many guys being in different classes. And I rolled in the 251 and who's my boat crew? Mark Lee. You know what I mean? Wow. And uh, so so I got to, you know, be in buds with some dudes who went on to become legends and uh, made it through Hell Week, went through first phase again, made it through Hell Week. Right after I finished Hell Week, got double roll for swims because I still had a pass in the swims. Got, got through... Um, Got got through rollback land, went to dive phase, ended up failing my first two swims in dive phase, and it fell uh, a, a test in pool week. They got performance drops. Pool and comp was uh, pool comp. Is that right? Uh, the tread. 
Oh, the trad then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was a real, that was a, that, I needed that to happen. I really, really needed that to happen to me because I, you know, back to that, that hip hop pride, you know, mm. verbose type demeanor that comes from the culture. Um, I got a very prideful especially after I made it through Hell Week, because in my mind, I was like, here's this guy, here I am, I made it from Africa to the Bronx, sold drugs in the Bronx, you know, evaded going to jail, made it into the Navy, made it in the SEAL training, made it through Hell Week, nobody can't tell me anything. In my mind, like, I knew absolutely everything. And that's, that was dangerous, and I needed to be humble. And, you know, during the weekends when instructors would come and work with guys and stuff, I was too busy partying at the gas lamp district because I thought I had already arrived that I wouldn't show up. And that was my downfall. And I remember going after I failed, you know, the last tread, I remember going to AR, my ARB board and um, and the instructors were like, hey, do you know why we're dropping you? And do you have anything to say? And I said, absolutely. You know, I, you know, this is my fault. And that was the first time in my adult life I took responsibility for my actions. Wow. Um, because I had always blamed everybody everything it was never my fault it was always this person's fault it was always the system it was always it was always something and and, and that was the first time in my life i freaking raised my chin and i said it was me dude like i screwed up like and, and i'm gonna go paint him in and i hope that i get a chance to come back at some point and so um uh, you know, that's where the less I coined up the phrase, you know, failure is only a failure if you don't learn from it. But if you learn from it, it's a lesson. Mm -hmm. And uh, the lesson that I got out of that failure was, you know, one, never show up to anything uh, unprepared. And, and two, walk in humility, especially when you become successful or achieve just some level of success. Because if you don't walk in humility, you're going to get crushed. Pride will eventually find its way to you and crush you. And you will pay the man. And so, you know, Day after I got dropped from Buds, I was in the pool. Um, I didn't know if I was going to get a chance to go to Buds. I was going, I was going to first million division. And, uh, you know, there was a guy in my Buds class um, and a few guys who were Buds around the same time as me who, you know, who were corpsmen and they either got dropped or quit and they went to first million division and got killed. So I didn't know if I was going to get a chance to, to, to go back, but I just knew that if I had that chance, I would earn it. And, uh, you know, just to fast forward, I got that chance. You know, I went to first million division. You know, I was there for like a year and a year and, and change. And, you know, my LPO at first million division ended up becoming the command career counselor. So he went from being in charge of like 12 corpsmen to being in charge of like 800 corpsmen. And so and he knew my work ethic. He knew, you know, he knew what I wanted. So he talked to the command master chief of first marine division. It was like, hey, this guy... You know, he made his diet phase of buds and he's hungry. He's, you know, he's has great evals. He wants to get back. You know, can we let him go early? And uh, the command master was like, if he signs a page 13 that says if he quits or doesn't make it, that he's going to come back and do three years and or do two deployments, then I'll, then I'll let him go to buds. And I bet on myself. I was just like, you know what, dude? <laughs> all my all chips in. Yeah. I made it. And uh, I went back and Went through first phase again, third time, went through hell week again, made it through. We went to dive phase, made it through, went to, you know, third phase, made it through. And, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah. Not many people have gone through three hell weeks. There's a few people that have done two, you know, yeah. still not, still not, not a lot. There can't be. How many people have done three hell weeks? 
I don't know, but I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recommend it one bit. Oh man! In my kneecaps, man. In my neck. <laughs> Did they get uh, from the first to the second to the third? Is there one that stands out as is uh, worse than the others? I mean, other than not making it through them, but physically or did, did you, was it better to know what was coming or not oh, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or? Yeah, no, it was definitely easy to know what was coming. Okay. Was like, I mean, because, you know, once you go through, you, you when it struck us, like, if you guys keep sucking, we're going to make hell we go until the next Sunday. You're going to do this eight days. And my mom, I'm like, yeah, whatever, this man, I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> you, know, okay. you know the games that are coming you uh-huh. kind of get a sense for how long the surf tortures are going to be you uh-huh. get a sense for like how long the beatdown sessions because they got to get to the next evolution they got to get to the old course we got the old course this time the instructors want to go home so uh-huh. so you kind of get it all figured out and uh not all figured out but you got a good sense of what's going to happen so it makes it, make it easier <laughs> it's so wild and did you guys watch the same movie each time because when you when i read in in the book that you guys watched yeah. gladiator for at least one of them um yeah. i was like uh because for ours uh brave how braveheart had come out but uh we had they hadn't started watching it yet for hell weeks and yeah. for whatever reason our class watched apocalypse now oh, which, did you guys? which, which is not a good movie to watch before yeah. you go into hell week i mean yeah. you know how it ends i mean it's pretty depressing it's kind of dark you know it's not like you don't watch that film for like motivational, inspirational type purposes, you know, yeah, gladiator yeah. Braveheart are awesome. But, uh, yeah, uh, this is the end. Like having that plan in your head, uh, yeah. as you go into hell week is, is a little, le- is less than ideal. But, uh, did you guys watch gladiator every time or was it gladiator for one? I want to say, I know we, I think we watched, Gla- I'm for sure. We for sure watched gladiator once. I'm yeah. to think of the movie we may have watched. I think, I think we did Braveheart the second time. Yeah memory serves me right yeah that's um, a good one but we did i, I want to say we did like two or three movies well I, that makes sense because yeah apocalypse now is like two or three movies uh if you yeah, watch yeah, it yeah. <laughs> in yeah. its entirety so probably, yeah, i'm pretty sure we probably did gladiator you know all three times and then watched like another movie uh, uh got uh, it with that I'm pretty yeah. sure. Every people yeah. that are wondering that we're talking about, you go to this classroom. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's been a, been a, a moon or two since I did it, but yeah, they have, I can get some like pizza, maybe some Gatorade. You watch a movie. And then at some point you get ushered out to the, to the tents and then hell week starts and, and off you go to the races. But, um, yeah. So that brought some memories back. I was like, Oh man, I can't believe they made us watch apocalypse now. I mean, it just was not, uh, probably not the greatest, but, uh, yeah, three hell weeks. And this one, this is pretty cool in here. Um, you write this year, uh, class two, six, seven, you have run 806 miles. You have swum 77 miles. You have paddled a boat for more than 19 hours. You have run the obstacle course 29 times. You have spent 35 hours diving underwater. You have done 126 hours of physical training. You have shot 3000 rounds of ammunition. You have treaded water for five minutes without your dive gear. You have held your breath for 50 meters underwater and you've completed the most demanding training week in United States military hell week. If you're standing here today, that means you have met the requirements I just listed and the many other requirements necessary to graduate buds. I think they say that at every, every class graduation or something like that, but it's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing. Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty motivational, you know, fires. Yeah. But I love reading the guy's names in here. Like Fortin, I remember him, Coons, like I was seeing these names in here that I remember. I was like, oh man, that that was, that was pretty cool. Um, but then you go to jump school, like you can't punish you. You got to do three hell weeks. 
And, and then you go to jump school and you jump on bro- broken ankles uh, yeah. or a broken ankle. What's uh, what was that about? Yeah, man. So, you know, I went to, you know, did my get to static line jump, did the first jump all good. Uh, then did the second jump. When we did the second jump, I was the, I was the, the second man out. So there, there was a first guy out and I was the second man out. And yeah, the, you know, the, the third or fourth guy. And, uh, um, when we got out, I felt pad. We didn't realize it because of the spacing, but I, because if you look at it, it looks like they're on the same level, but I fell slightly past the, uh, the number one guy. And so um, as we're coming down, I was already into the wind and I hear the DZ commander on the ground. He had a ball and he's screaming number, uh, uh, number two guy turn into the wind. And I had, when I jumped out, I was the number two guy. I didn't realize. Ah. And so I'm like, this guy can't be talking to me. Like I'm already into it. So then like the screaming just gets more and more prominent. Number two guy turn into the wind now. You need to turn into the wind now. It's going to be too late. I'm like, Nah, he can't be talking. He's like, you need to do it now. I'm number two guy. Scared to born. So I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. It wasn't born. It was a, uh, a radio because we all had on the uh, walkie-talkies. Because uh, you're doing this in San Diego. You're not going to, yeah. to Benny yeah, at this right point. Okay. Right, here, right down here in San Diego at Brownfield. And uh, and I was like, this guy, this is my second jump. This dude on the ground might know something I don't know. I should probably listen to him because I thought he was talking to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I, I started turning out of the wind. I was already in the wind. Oh man. Turning out of the wind. And as soon as I turned my parachute, because it was a super windy, windy day. It was a uh, really, really windy day. As soon as I started turning, I felt the, the wind hit my and I just started going down fast and fast and fast. And I had to make a decision. And the decision was, do I correct and potentially learn land sideways, like with the wind, like if the wind's coming this way, like like this, and like really freaking break my hips and jack myself up. Yeah. Or do I just like stay here, you know, with my back to the wind and just try to do a freaking gnarly PLF? And I didn't have time to turn, you know, full because I didn't have time to turn the way around. And so I just stayed and like seconds later I hit the ground and as soon as I hit the ground I hit my right ankle snap crackle pop oh. and uh and when I hit the ground again I had to make another decision <laughs> do I report this injury or do I uh, try to tough it out and, and knock out my last two jumps and uh you know and and never have to potentially potentially never have to do a static line ground jump again and uh I uh I opted for the latter. I, so I opted for the first option yeah. and I didn't report the injury. I, you know, being a corpsman, I knew how to manipulate the medic and I manipulated mm. her and uh, was able to, as soon as I got on the bus, I told the guys, and I was like, yo man, I broke my ankle. And they was like, oh man, that sucks. You know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll kind of hide it, help you hide oh. it. Last two jumps. And uh, the bus pulls up to the, uh, to the hangar and, we get an announcement without doing any more jumps for the day. Cause I, we were going to do all four jumps. Uh-huh. Done. Now it's going to go to the hospital. And uh, they was like, we're not doing any more jumps for the day because the winds are way too high. High uh-huh. wind is this and that, which they were already high. It was like, yeah. you know, more jumps is going to potentially hurt somebody. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's too late for that. And so uh, I was like, damn it. So uh, literally, you know, my boys helped me get into, uh, into my car drove my car home uh, and had to crawl up the steps into my apartment, got into my apartment, just had to crawl everywhere. 
And uh, I was determined. It was just like, I'm not going to, I'm going to finish this thing. I had a buddy of mine come to my apartment the next morning. He spat it on my egg. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep on my back because my, the brake was there that my foot would fall down. I couldn't sleep on my side because the foot and bone would go down this way. I couldn't sleep on the other side. Same thing. And so I just said, you know what? I had to sit. I had to sleep sitting. And um, then the next morning, buddy of mine would play for San Diego State football team came and spat it up my ankle. And then I went back um, to the hangar. And, you know, they had us do the practice box jumps. Oh, I can't remember. It was all old school Fort Benning. So we did the tower. Yeah, we did the box. I think you progress. So yeah, probably yeah. one full week I did of that, but I've just probably just, uh, yeah, suppressed that from my, from my memory. Yeah. So for those who don't know, we're like one of the, one of the ways they train us on how to PLF, a PLF stands for a parachute landing for It's like supposed to be a control fall because the static line jump shoots do not provide the best uh, support when you're hitting mm. the ground. So you got to kind of learn how to hit the ground in a control way. So one way to make you practice doing a PLF is you have these steps. It's about three or four steps. Oh yeah. We did up. that. Now I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, you jump off and you do a practice PLF. So I get there and uh, um, you know, I was the first up. Uh, oh. Adelaide, last name, hey. <laughs> oh. And uh, I did my first one, and uh, all the guys in my class were like, oh, like they were cringing. And I was like, all right, I'm good. And they was like, no, do it again. The instructors, it's like, you didn't land right. Because I did it. I couldn't land right because I couldn't land on my, my right foot. And they made me do it again. They made me do it. Every time I hit the ground, a bone shift and move. Oh. They made me do it again. They made me do it again. And then finally, you know, the medic who I had manipulated the day before, I told her I had a, I sprained my left ankle. She ran up and she's like, no, stop, stop. He sprained his left ankle. He can't keep doing this. And uh, and I was like, where were you freaking 10 minutes ago, lady? Oh. And uh, that's how I was able to kind of, you know, get through and then did my third jump and then did my fourth jump and then went to the hospital and, and couldn't walk for four months. Wow. That's but I never, crazy. I never, I never had to do a static line ground. I did a static line water jump, but I never had to do a static line ground jump again. No kidding. I think we had to do five, but maybe my memory, it's been a long time. I went, my jump school was in uh, 97. So uh, at Fort Benning, I remember five jumps for some reason, but it is five. So it's, it's, it's five, it's five to complete. It's, it's four to complete the course. Four is the minimum okay. to the course. And then, but like, if you, so if you get injured on your fourth, then, then, you know, you graduate. Like the fifth is just like a, uh, yeah, extra one just in case, you know, something happens. Just in case life. you didn't get enough with those first four. Uh, yeah. But this is cool. You're right. Uh, I was a complete mess when I got back on the plane for my last jump. I was in so yeah. much pain and then depression began to creep in. First, you get rolled out of Hell Week in 250. Then you get rolled for swims in 251. Then you get dropped from Buzz in five, 253. Then you get rolled in a third phase in, in 266. Now this, just as I had during my other classes, I had grown close to this group of guys. And I knew that after this jump, they would move on to their other qualifications and then their SEAL teams. Once again, I would be left behind. As I sat with my head down, I felt a slap on the top of my helmet, which prompted me to look up. Get your head up, Adelaide. It was Dill. I lifted my head and stared at him as he continued. Look, I know your ankle is jacked up. I know your body is a mess, but listen, this is who we are. This is what we do. We do the hard things. We do the things that no one can do, and we do them with a smile. So I want you to pick your head up, stop feeling sorry for yourself, and jump out of the plane like the frogman that you are. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. That fired me up, man. It fired me up. Fires me up right now. I want to go jump right now. 
Yeah, not really. And that's that's what what the brotherhood is about, right? It's about encouraging each other, holding us accountable to holding each other accountable to the standard. And you know, he held me accountable to the standard. And would I have jumped out of the plane anyway? Yeah, I was going to jump out of the plane anyway. But my attitude wasn't in the right place. I needed to have the attitude of a program. He reminded me of that. Yeah. And I take that story with me in everything that I do. You know, is 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 to maintain that that level of excellence and integrity in what you do because. You know, you never know who's watching. But even if nobody is watching, you still got to do it because that's what that's what our trident is about. That's what our brotherhood and, and our lifestyle is about. It's about doing everything with excellence, regardless of whether you're going to get a pat on the back or not, regardless of whether somebody's watching or not. And so, um, yeah, I love that story. That's great. That's right. Yeah, that thing that that stood out to me in there. And then you get to so you're you're down now for again though you're you can't walk for how long? Four months. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. You check into your SEAL team like on crutches? Healed up and uh, finished the rest of SQT and then went to my team. Oh, I see. Okay, got yeah. it. Yeah, a little different yeah. than ours. Yeah, got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you go to yeah. your team and you walk in, you run into Chris Kyle's, one of the first people you run into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he was in Natasha, in Natasha, like when I got there. And, uh, dude, that was, I didn't know who he was. You know what I mean? I had just kind of heard things. I heard about this guy who's a sniper, you know. When you're in buds and SQT, you don't you don't hear a lot of what's going on in the operational world um, from the the legend, so to speak. And so uh, I ran into him. I didn't know who he was, and it was just like cool because I'm like, hey, what's up, man? And, and um, I'm SO two at Lake. He's like, oh, he's like, you know, cow, you know. And it was just it, that that was years later. That's when I was when he died. That's why I was like. But the crazy thing was you have these two different people from two completely different worlds. Yeah. That was the, like, that was the thing that really boggled my mind. Cause Chris is from a completely different Texas born and bred, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. probably wanted to be a frog man since he was a young man, you know, you know, big dude, you know, sniper cat. And I'm this dude from the, from the streets of the Bronx and these two worlds. And that's what I love about the SEAL team, the cultures yeah. that, you know, are brought together, you know, the different lifestyles, the backgrounds, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, people who've gone to Yale and Princeton, dudes who were like, hey, were lawyers or and decided I want to be a SEAL. It just, mm-hmm. just brings together the cream of the crop and just people from such eclectic backgrounds. It's the coolest thing. And then we all work together. You know, we all work together and get the job done together. And, uh, and that that's that's that was awesome. Now, and, and you know, I think that that's a lesson that we really, really need in our culture today, in our in America. You know, it's this idea of yeah, we can we can be from different backgrounds or have different beliefs, but you know, we we're one nation, we're one mm-hmm. country. We should still be able to work together to get the job done. You know, we don't yeah. have to love each other or be infatuated with each other, but we can work together and get the job done. And you know, I, I just really. I really hope that that message kind of gets out there a little bit further because it's desperately needed. I hate this division that we have in our country because it's not what, you know, it's not what our brothers and sisters died for. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's, so I don't know. What yeah. I'm no, and it's exacerbated by people who benefit from that division, namely politicians and, and tech companies. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, we're right in the middle inside this L ambush, you know, but, um, 
Man, that always stood out to me too. My entire time in the teams, my entire 20 years, that always stood out to me how different people coming from all those different backgrounds that you just talked about come together and then we solve problems. And having all those different backgrounds working on a problem set together allows you to adapt and really to apply all of that all those years of experience, lifetimes of experience, but not all the same. Cause then you can just solve it with one person. All these different ones come together. I think that really allowed us on the battlefield to be able to solve problems aggressively. Um, and, but, but that's how we did it is because we had so many different backgrounds in yeah. there, in the teams that stood out. That has always stood out to yeah. me by my entire Everybody, time. hundred you know, percent. Everybody's able to bring something to the table. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's what helped me out tremendously, you know, you know, doing the human stuff, you know, um, or being overseas and doing that, you know, uh, because I was able to bring something to the table, bring mm. that street element, you know, growing yeah. up in the street, interacting with, with drug dealers and crackheads and, you know, and, 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 and trying to figure out, is this person telling the truth? Is this person a threat or not a uh-huh. threat? And, and, you know, just being able to bring that flavor into the human world, you know, mm. where, having to meet with sources and run meetings and, you know, do surveillance and counter surveillance in, in, in an urban style environment and figure out, is this intelligence right? Or is this intelligence wrong? Is this person BSing me? Is this uh-huh. person too scared to tell me the truth? So that just speaks to the, to that point as it relates to, you know, bringing these different flavors, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and these different backgrounds into soft, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely uh, invaluable. Yeah. Well, how did you get in the, on the, the human track? Cause for those listening, human intelligence is uh, like developing sources and uh, getting information and putting together these target packages or giving that information to other people who are putting together these target packages, putting that piece of the puzzle together. Um, yeah. but so how did you get down that path and what were the, what were those deployments like? Yeah, it was, dude, it was when I, I found out about it in SQT cause we did like a little mini introduction to, mm-hmm. uh, I won't, you know, I'm not sure yeah, can't say it, but I won't say the term introduction to human. I'll just say that. And uh, when, when we did, I was just like, man, this is cool. I didn't know that the salt had that type of capability. Yeah. I had that. I, mean, I knew they were snipers, breachers, medics, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And so, you know, when I when I got to my team, um, my uh, you know, I was already a corpsman. So, I mean, I was, was no getting away from that. Uh, but my platoon chief was like, Utica was like, yo, dude, he was like, you know, what, what else you, would you like to do? And I was like, dude, I'd love to, I'd love to go to human school. And, um, and he was like, ah, oh, you can't go. They typically don't allow new guys to go. You know, you got to do at least a deployment first before you can go. And uh, I was like, all right, well, I'll be patient and do my job. So fast forward, we were getting ready to deploy. Fast forward to, uh, this was, this was, uh, I want to say, to, I want to say September or October, after we had already finished our workout, we were in sit and um, we got, we found out where we were going to go deploy and um, they needed more level, more human guys, you know, because there were a lot of HVTs and uh, there weren't enough, you know, human guys to, to help track and build intelligence packages on the HVTs. And uh, so my, my OIC was like, yo, who wants to go? And I was like, my head is shut up. I'd like to go. And so I got a waiver from OIC, my platoon chief and the command uh, uh, CO and went through the whole screening process, which was cool, pretty cool. And then after that, I went to I went to to the school and that sucked. Yeah. <laughs> but the blessing in that was the writing, man. Like, I mean, 
my mom already talked to him, talked about how my mom would have my brother and I write when we were kids. But, and, but when you get there, like just the level of writing where you have to write in a way where somebody can pick up a report and read it, you know, 10 years from now, read it so it happened that day. So I really learned like writing as it relates to storytelling, mm-hmm. because there's the difference between a, a writer, in my opinion, and a, and a storyteller. And you have some people who are just writers. That's all they can do is like is write. And then you have some people who are just storytellers. And that's all they can do is storytell. But then you have people who can merge both where they're writers and storytellers, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's where I want to say I really, my skill set as a storyteller, as it relates to writing, was enhanced. Mm-hmm. And um, and after I went down, after then that's kind of how I got into it. And then we deployed and uh, 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 CENTCOM, Iraq, and dude, like, had a turnover with, uh, with the with the human guys before uh, who were there with Team One guys and jumped straight in, jumped straight in, you know, meeting the sources, doing all that stuff, you know, had the, you know, thin skin and the, you know, and the MP5 and all that stuff and throughout the beard and all that, stuff, all that cool stuff and, and just hit the ground running. I really felt like it, I really felt like I could connect with the sources because they weren't in the hood, but they were in a very rough, hard, harsh environment. You know what I mean? They were surrounded by various figures. They just wanted peace. They just wanted like what most people in the Bronx want. They just want to be able to live in all, you know, go do their job, come home, feed their kids, go to sleep. They don't want all the craziness. And that was something that I was able to, to, to really empathize with with a lot of the sources though, because that's all they wanted. They just wanted to be able to, they didn't want like the terrorism. They didn't want, you know, the IED. They didn't want all of this craziness. And uh, so I was just able to come down to level and 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 I, and I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it. And I felt like I was blessed to be able to live, you know, best of both worlds because I was able to do the intelligence side of things. Mm-hmm. And I was able to build those packages that, that would lead to us kicking down doors. So I was able mm-hmm. to kick down doors and do DAs and do that kind of stuff. And uh, I remember one time, like, uh, uh, my, I think I shared a story in the book, but um, I was running the source and he had he had all this information on this uh, um, on this uh, badge and this HPT that, you know, we have been tracking. I think CAD guys have been tracking for a while as well. And, uh, and, 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 so I did my meeting in my 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 shirt and my regular pants, civilian stuff. And then and then I was like, all right, got the target at this location. I'll be right back. And left the meeting. And then next thing, you know, pick him up, bring him to base. Next thing he sees me in my digis and you know, kit, everything, ski mask on. He's like, who are you? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and then he we had to bring him on out and help identify somebody. Yeah. But it was like, but that was just, I just loved it, man. I loved it, and you know. Like you, man, like James Bond and, and and Jason Bourne and just like those are all guys that, you know, and stories that I've always felt found cool, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and just all of that, you know, and so like I really wanted to be, it was cool to be a part of that world, and, and, you know, as you know, and especially given the background. Now it's kind of an inspiration for the, the, uh, my next book that's coming out uh, uh, in 2023, a fiction book called The Chameleon. Nice. I mean, yeah, I remember you talked about that. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, and a lot of it's all, you know, fiction. Great title. Great title. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's Black Box um, Chameleon. And, uh, and and that that character is kind of very loosely based off of me. And, you know, so it was that African story and all that stuff in the world. But a big part of it was this kid who came from this area, but that was able to figure out his life and go into the CIA and be a Black Box Chameleon agent. And, um, 
and yeah, man, hopefully we can inspire more people through that. But anyway, I still I say I, I love the world of human intelligence. Yeah. I had to do um, three deployments, you know, got to do it all, man. And you know, it was it was it was so fulfilling. And I want to say, you know, it's my the 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 biggest moment of my naval career, man, was my very first time, man. Like, you know, we, we didn't get into a firefight. It wasn't anything hairy. It was just, I was the, I was the gunner and we pull into target, assault force dismounted, hit the target, pulled off a bunch of, pull, uh, pulled a bunch of IED material and, and bombs and bomb maker material and HVT uh, on target. And I just remember hearing everything over comms as I'm just sitting there, just staring at the nice guy through my nods. And I was just like, man, like I made it. Mm. I mean, and I remember saying, if I don't do anything else in my career as a frog man, as a human being, I made it. I made it. And so, you know, I loved my time in the teams and I loved the opportunities that, that it gave me and the stuff that I was, the places I was able to go. And, mm. and then the guys, man, as you know, the brothers, man, the brotherhood uh, of the guys that I was able to serve with and, you know, we're still brothers to my day. I'm closer to a lot of guys in the teams and I am some of my own brothers, but I'm uh, yeah, sure you can relate to that too, but it was awesome. Oh man. I mean, so you do, you kind of go back to back three in a row and then decide to, to move on and is Hollywood the draw? Do you already know that you want to uh, write, direct, act? Like what's the, uh, what's the progression there? Yeah, it was all crazy, man. So like I, my last year was like a sure duty type situation. Uh, I was helping out at the uh, uh, motivators. I know they changed the name. Dive motivator, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, dude, my second son, my first son was born, uh, my second of last year. And, and then my second son was born in June. And my contract was up the, the upcoming January. And I was just like, I was in, I was in grad school. So I, you know, mm -hmm. I, I had gotten my, I did, they had the program for the SEALs to get their mm -hmm. degree through University of Trust in West Virginia. So, I was, I had already got my bachelor's and I was doing my, my grad school thing. And I was just like, man, I want to be home with my kids. You know, uh, it's been 13 years. I did 13 years total in the Navy. And I was just like, my dad died when I was five and I'm going to be home. Mm -hmm. And my brother, I have a brother-in-law who's a YPO or, and out of Canada, I'm not sure if you're familiar with YPO. Yeah. Those who don't know, YPO stands for Young President Organization. Uh, these are all guys who are millionaires and billionaires and they become millionaires and billionaires under the age of 40 and there's chapters all over the world and my brother-in-law is a YPR and so like towards the end of my career he would you know have me do consulting stuff with him mm -hmm. and he would introduce me to guys in his forum and I was just like oh cool like I'm gonna do I'm gonna do this I'm gonna just consult take you know special operations principles to translate into business and share those principles and, uh, and so I kind of started doing that and that's what led me to pursue my master's degrees. Cause I didn't want to just be like, I'm a team guy. Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I wanted to be kind of, kind of give the, uh, the science behind things as it relates yeah. to business. And so, uh, I got out in January and that's what I was pursuing and that's what I was going to stick with. And then it fast forward to May of 2016, um, I got a phone call from this lady who was just like, hey, I uh, work with Michael Bay. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget, I was in my office, um, which another house, the same office set up. And uh, she was writing papers and she was just like, hey, you know, based on somebody with your background and you're interested to work on a project. 
I was like, yeah. And she was like, uh, send me your pictures. And I sent her some pictures and, uh, and she sent them to Bay and then Bay was like, cool, he's in. And that was Transformers the last night. You know, that was my first project. That was the first thing I did. That's why. That's because you'd worked with SEALs before, uh, specifically on Transformers also. Uh, you've done done other things, obviously rock and stuff too, but Transformers, I think every movie had SEALs in it, I think. Yeah. 13 hours. Um, all the Transformers uh, they did had seals in it. Um, and yeah, the rock, I mean, I'm trying to think of even recent stuff. I think even uh, the one he did with the, with the rock and Dwayne and uh, Mark Wahlberg, the drug one down in Miami. Uh-huh. We, yeah, um, there were seals on ambulance. I did ambulance with him uh, two years ago and I was a seal. And then, but I, I played an undercover cop, but there were like two other seals on that as well. So he's, he's definitely like, you know, super supportive of, of SEALs and SEALs in the arts as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, yeah, worked on that project. And then I got hired to do some other consulting work and and other consulting slash acting work. And Did you and, love it right away? Did you know that's what you were going to go do? Or was it kind um, of like buying some time to work on the master still? Or You know, at the time, it's interesting because it's like one of those things where I love storytelling. I just didn't know how or what that was going to look like later. Mm. At the period, because it was consulting and acting, it was like, this is it. But as I began to expand and, and read scripts and work with other people and do other things, that's when I really, really began to get more dialed in. Okay. And it got dialed into, I'm going to be a writer director. Yeah. But first, at first it started with, I just want to be a writer. Nice. Like, I just want to be a writer. And, um, and, I wrote a, um, I wrote my book, Transformed, and right after I wrote my book is when I got sick. I was working on Six Underground, and during Six Underground, that's why I was like, "Dude, I want to write. I want to write screenplays." And so then I wrote the Chameleon screenplay. Uh-huh. I figured you know that Chameleon concept, black box Chameleon. I wrote the Chameleon screenplay, and um, and then continued consulting, and then I wrote. Um, a screenplay called The Last Shall Be First, which is a true story about the first group of African-Americans to serve as special operations. Crazy story. I never heard the stories to all black rangers. This was during the Korean War. Gnarly, gnarly story. Oh yeah, 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 it's crazy, bro. So so I'll I'll just give you a piece of this. So we were getting snatched during the Korean War because that was the first time we encountered guerrilla warfare. Prior to the Korean War, it was like the Nazis had their uniforms, the Japanese had their uniforms, we had our uniforms, they had their flags, we had our flags, a lot of stuff. We had like pretty much clear battle lines and who was who in the zoo. During the Korean War, that's when we had people in clothes running around and doing all kinds of booby traps on and we never, the U.S. forces never encountered um, guerrilla warfare. So back in the summer of 1950, we were just getting slaughtered to the point where the CIA got together with the army and said, we need to create a unit that can conduct guerrilla warfare, that can fight fire with fire. And they looked at a bunch of different military units and one of the units they took was the Rangers because the Rangers had been around and they essentially kind of the very first Ranger, like Ranger Special Operations Ranger School was in October of 1950. And, and um, so many people had left the military um, after World War II, the military had completely downsized and they opened up the Ranger School to Blacks. So you had the triple nickel, um, the guys who had, you know, army service corps guys and, and, and the long white guys were able to all go to ranger school together in October of 1950. And then once they graduated in December of 1950, 
the desegregation act had already been passed, but it hadn't trickled down to the army yet. And so the all the black rangers were put in the all black ranger unit, second ranger battalion, and then the all white rangers were put in another ranger unit. And then they all went to career and they were getting after it. Like, like both units were getting after it, fighting behind enemy lines, grew out beards, customized their clothes and weapons. You know, they did the jump in the Musam, and I want to say that was May of 1951. And it was just gnarly. And then the, the um, Black Ranger unit got disbanded in August of 1951. And But that was the only period in American history from from um, from the end of December of 1950 to August 1951, where we had an all-Black special operations capable unit. And so, so I wrote that. I came across that story. I tried to get the rights to the book uh, because there's a book out called All Black Rangers, but it didn't work out. So I figured, you know, let me just um, let me just kind of create fictional characters mm-hmm. to keep the same kind of story and the, yeah. all the stuff that went on around it. And so uh, I wrote that screenplay. And then uh, those two screenplays are what got me uh, an agent um, and then at APA. And then that was two screenplays, got me my first writing job that got me into the WGA, which is the Writers Guild mm-hmm. of America. I was hired to adapt a book called Slave Steelers into a limited series. And uh, so that's what kind of made, kind of got me into the professional writing thing. And that was after the book. I think the, the book had already came out at that point, Transformed. And yeah, just kept on writing, kept on writing. And then The Chameleon got picked up by a major producer. I can't announce yet. That was about two years ago. I went through about eight months of rewrites. And then uh, we attached a star last year, last May. And then um, HarperCollins got a hold of the book, uh, uh, this chameleon screenplay, read it. It was just like, this would be an awesome book series. And of course, every time I met with my agent, John, everybody's Jack Carr, Jack Carr. <laughs> like, like, this is, is going to be like another cool journalist Jack Carr. Yeah, so I hear your name all the time with my, with my agent, John, my publishing agent. Oh, but, nice. Uh, um, but yeah, everything, all my publishing is like, Jack Carr is amazing. He's like, oh, there's nobody that does social media like Jack Carl when it comes to Oh, man, he's right there. But you got anybody that loves you, man. Uh, but, uh, who, 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 what's his last name? John Talbot. John yeah. Talbot. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask him if it's John Talbot. That's, uh, yeah. that's awesome, man. Uh, John, what's up? How's it going? Yeah, <laughs> if he's yeah, listening. Yeah, yeah. yeah, very cool. So, yeah, he's, he's great. Yeah. He's, he's fantastic. You got a great agent. He's an awesome dude. So that book, we turn, I turned it into the publisher four weeks ago, got an email two days ago from her. And, uh, uh, listen, she was just like, she's like, the book is amazing. I don't have any notes just yet. I'm paraphrasing. I mean, she was just like, I'm going to read it again. But nice. she's like, so she, so she loves it. So, Oh, that's um, great. Congratulations. That's awesome. So we're going to try and we're going to get it out next year, probably after the, um, around the time that the U S version of the SAS. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And when is that one coming? How did that evolve? Then did they, uh, and, and where was that? Did you Australia or where did you guys do that? Yours or so Jordan that, or something? That, yeah, that's story. Yeah, we shot the last season in Jordan yeah. and that was, uh, yeah, they reached out to me like two or three years ago. And, and, uh, and I went through the whole interview process and then never heard anything. And then, uh, fast forward to last year, last, uh, I want to say last, right after I finished working with you guys on Terminal. I mean, no, it was work. I was working on Terminalist with you guys during that time because it was like between June and July they reached back out and were like, hey, we want to want to kind of uh, rethink bringing you on to the project and then we went through an interview process again and then 
got the job. And then, you know, after I finished terminal list, I flew to Puerto Rico to shoot um, the plane or Gerard Butler that comes out this January. Oh, nice. And uh, did that for two months out there and then flew from, from um, Puerto Rico to Saudi Arabia, did a, a writer's conference there and then flew from Saudi Arabia to Jordan. A writer's conference in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, man. The, the prince, the crown prince is, uh, he's, you know, he's, you know, he's really kind of modernizing Saudi Arabia. And so he, so he's doing, he's putting on these big conferences and, and uh, festivals and stuff to kind of, you know, show in some way that, you know, Saudi Arabia is changing a little bit. Uh-huh. And uh, um, yeah, he started this, started this writer slash book conference. It was massive, brother. It was like the size of Coronado, this big building that they made. It's like a one-story building that they they made just for this this conference. Oh. And it's writers and books from all over the world. It was super, super cool. And I spoke on a panel there. Well, no, I spoke just, I was interviewed there at the conference. And uh, and, and I went and shot that show. And uh, it was a great experience. Man, you're like gone for like six months. Yeah, I was going, yeah, I was going, yeah, my wife was in the Hurt Locker, brother. <laughs> yeah, she was in the Hurt Locker, man. A lot of crazy. It's like a house deployment. Flooded while we were gone. Yeah, it was like a deployment, yeah. A house flooded, car broke down, everything, kids were acting up, so it was a rough one. It was her her mini buds. Man. <laughs> man, that is wild. And so what point on this, so uh, how long did it take to film the uh, SAS show? Are you guys there for like a, a month or two months or what is it? Yeah, we filmed two seasons. So um, we were there. I got there like the first week of October. I want to say like October 6th. And then um, and then we and then we wrapped and I was on a plane November 10th. Okay. Um, so you and, pack it in uh, there. Yeah, we shot two seasons. So we shot like uh, the civilian season and then the celebrity season. The celebrity season is currently airing on Channel 4 in the UK. Okay. Um, so we shot that one and then uh, and then and then left. Jordan, and then fast forward to April, they reached out to me and said, "Hey, Fox picked up the U.S. version of the show." Nice. And they had been trying to get Fox, a, a U.S. network, to pick it up for a while. But yeah. Fox and then, like, they were all ecstatic. And, nice. And we went out there and shot the celebrity. So Fox is just doing the celebrity, whereas the UK need to do a civilian season. Yeah. And the celebrity Fox is just like, no, we just want to do a celebrity season. So that was that was from. It's no joke, right? Like I've had some of those guys on the on the podcast before, and it's no joke what people are going through. Bro, Squid Games, man. Yeah, I saw I that in your post. I saw that yeah. in your post. You're like the real I'm Squid Games. Joking. I'm not joking. Yeah. Not, I, I can't talk about what happens in the in the in the Fox version. I can tell you that them dudes got after it. Yeah, the the the, the, the celebrities. There was no whole. I mean, to the yeah, I can't say anything. Yeah, but yeah. What I want to say is that. This, this the the UK version is brutal too, and I and because it's cursing like literally do like people almost freaking breaking bones like it looks it's, it's, crazy. It's nuts. It's nuts. And it's a point where when I did it, when I did the first season, I was like, "Yo, can you guys? Can we do? Can we do this? Are we this allowed? <laughs> like, is this like uh-huh. is this legal? Somebody, like getting seriously hurt or get killed? Like you? And it was like, yep, dude. This season we've been doing this for a long time. I was like, all right. And then when we got to the Fox version, I was just like, oh, they definitely going to tone it down, especially with these celebrities. Not at all, bro. Wow. And when, when people watch this show, they're going to, they gonna, dude, the, the concept in the show in the UK is like the biggest, one of the biggest shows in the UK. Yeah. This show in the US is going to be massive. Nice. And it's not, and I'm not just saying that because they follow the same template. I'm saying that because this is going to be the first show where 
celebrities were were put through some crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, tears, the people were like literally like not not because they were wanting, but emotional tears. I mean, you're gonna see some stuff that's never been seen before. Yeah. And the cool thing that I love about the show is unlike other shows, is you know, other shows, it's like, oh, you get to the end, you get a prize, or you know, and all of this other, you know, superficial stuff, but it's not like that. But it's almost like a it's almost like an experience for them. It's mm-hmm. almost like therapy for them. And mm-hmm. we have these things called mirror rooms, mm-hmm. which you'll see in the UK, which is like an interrogation, but it's literally like a therapy session where they open up about like their deepest, darkest secrets that they never told anybody. And that's how it was in the UK series. And we, and I remember going to the Fox and I was like, there's no way these people gonna open up like that. In America, I think the uh-huh. UK, UK is different from America. They're not gonna do that, bro. Heavy man, like there's some he- there's some heavy stuff, man. Talk there's some heavy stuff that people are gonna hear when they watch the show. They they gonna and, and what I love about the show, what I why I signed on is because it's a way to help people. Going back to what we talked about with storytelling before, writing a book, you know, a TV show that has the potential to save lives and change lives, and the viewers are going to be able to see themselves in these celebrities. And I didn't think that was possible because in the civilian series in the UK, it's easy. You know, there's a girl in last season, her dad committed suicide, hung himself. She had to cut him down. Uh, This other girl, she was raped by her brother repeatedly from the time of three years old. You know, another person like his mom was at the, at the, uh, 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 Grande, the singer, uh, Ariana Grande concert Mm. when a terrorist attack happened. His mom got killed, right? And then there's all these other stories in there that are that are very, very like powerful stories. And and we in, in the mirror room through this interrogation, we're pulling these stories out, but then we're also able to help talk them through that wow. and then bring some form of healing. Like we're not we're not gonna solve their problem completely, but we, we're able to help give them the steps. And then when we get out onto the battlefield or into these practical applications, mm-hmm. then we're able to kind of drive those points home further and in my mind i was like i didn't see how we were going to be able to do that with a celebrity because these are these are millionaires these are freaking like famous people but you come to realize that they're people put the whole famous stuff aside they're still human beings and they're still human beings with real problems just like we all have real problems with real situations going through divorce having stuff with you know with their kids and all these different things and 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 the audience in the U.S. they're gonna they're gonna connect with that, especially in the time we're in right now. And the show is powerful, man. And I'm not trying to sell a show because it's like like no, it's it's around the it's world. It's a huge hit. Yeah, I already got paid. It's already made. <laughs> I'm not trying to sell a show. I'm just saying that it is it's it's heavy. Yeah. No, there's a reason that it's people are. Uh, connecting with it all around the world. And, you know, I was always wondering why it's taking so long to, to get here, but uh, I'm looking forward to watching that. And that's coming out January. Is that right? Yeah. January, 2023. Nice. Nice. That's coming out January book coming out around the same time. Chameleon. That'll be awesome. Can't wait to read that. I'm gonna go order it right now. uh, If I can pre-order, if it's up there, I'm gonna go order it right Uh, now. I think we're going to do pre-order. We're going to open up pre-orders in about two months. But, but, but you yeah. know I'm going to hit you up for an, for an endorsement, bro. I will, absolutely. <laughs> that would be my pleasure. Yeah, I know. It would be my I honor. I can't wait to, to order that thing up and, and support the cause. Um, man, that is so wild. And then at some point, when do you make this movie? 
Yeah. So man, <laughs> like, yeah. you got a lot going on here. Yeah. So I got back. I got back. I was in DR, as I said, and I saw some some crazy, horrible stuff. Well, well, you are. Came back. I was like, man, I got to do something, you know, because it's not enough to just rescue a kid or provide resources to a, a, a woman who's just been rescued out of a, a, a enslavement, like literally enslavement. What else can I do? And filmmaking came to mind. And in my mind, I was just like, if I can tell a story that can galvanize the masses, that can inspire people to get into this fight or not just get in the fight, to be aware of the signs of a traffic victim. There's a story that came out a couple months ago of a, a Delta Airlines pilot who she saw this, this little girl with a man and she, the girl was just, it, it, you could, she, something seemed off. Didn't she look just, right. Yep. Yeah. It's just something about this. This can't be your dad. Something they look, they weren't like a different race. She was just like this. Something. And she reported coming upon that that girl was trafficked. She was trafficked and that and the, and the trafficker was moving her out of the state to a different place to do who knows what. Okay. And, 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 but she was able that she saved that girl's life by being aware of the signs. And so in my mind, I was just like, I got to make more people aware at a minimum of the signs mm-hmm. of a trafficking victim. Be aware that this stuff happens right under our nose. Human trafficking is on track to surpass the drug trade. It's a $32 billion a year uh, 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 industry right now. You know what I mean? This, this, you know, it's, it's an organ harvesting. There's no real way to find the true statistics behind it, but organ harvesting is estimated to be a $1 billion uh, black market enterprise. I would say that it's a lot higher. I don't mm-hmm. trust that statistic because human trafficking right now is, is, is estimated at $32 billion in, in uh, um, industry and it's about to pass surpass the drug trade. And so as I'm getting all of this information and working with OUR, working with other human trafficking organizations and, and learning and seeing these things, I'm just like, I gotta tell a story. So I got so after I finished on Six Underground, I wrote a treatment called The Unexpected for a TV series. And essentially it followed this this these 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 two girls based on true events about these two Yazidis girls who were who were essentially trafficked by ISIS, which a lot of people don't know that that has happened. Like after we pulled out in 2016, I think well, no, after no about 2015, 2016, after we really started our drawdown, ISIS started to move into the north of Iraq, and they raided a lot of Yazidis villages. Mm-hmm. So many stories is out there in open source. This is not something that's like mm-hmm. not just hidden. And and the the men were killed, the girls were were taken. Uh, the boys, depending on their age, were either taken or killed. And the boys who were taken were groomed to be suicide bombers and, and, and or, you know, they were used for sex or organs and so on and so forth. The girls were used for sex and in some cases used for organs as well. That's how ISIS, you know, was able to keep funding their terror campaign because, again, not being able to go into all the details around what happens out in the internet space and different government agencies, but but their financing lines were cut to a certain extent around that time. So they had to find different ways to finance the operations. So, so you know, when I came across this story, there was this one girl in particular named Nadia and she survived. She was able to escape. You know, she was in, she was enslaved by ISIS for a number of years, raped multiple times, sold to different people multiple times. I think she's spoken at the UN as well. And as I came across the story, I was like, how come people don't know about this? So fast forward, 
I wrote the treatment, made made one of the main characters, named one of the main characters Nadia based after the actual girl was trafficked by ISIS. And my agent took it around town. And we got the same note from all these different studios and execs and producers and so on and so forth. Great material, great storyline, too dark. Mm. It's too dark. And this is during COVID. So, you know, the other thing was nobody wants to come home after dealing with COVID and all of this stuff going on and then have to watch something like yeah. that, which is understandable. But the thing is, we watch, we watch these freaking horror movies of people getting chopped up. And we, you know, we people watched all kinds of other crazy stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, I think it's an excuse in my opinion, but, but fast forward, I told my, I told my agent, I was like, dude, I gotta get this made. I gotta get this made. And so I said, screw it. You know, fast forward to last year, I was, I'm gonna put up the money. So I, I, you know, I got a few investors uh, um, and I put up about $150,000 of my own money. And uh, I told my, I told my, my, my producing partner, I was like, we're just going to go ahead and make this. We're going we're gonna to go ahead and make this film. I've, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to write this, write a short film and, and, and we're going to find a place to shoot it in and we're going to go shoot this film. And the crazy thing is everything fell into place. I decided, I think it was the first week of May, I was like, we're going to do this. No offense. Frogman style. No offense to us. I don't care what happens. We're going to shoot this film within the next 30 days. Oh, wow. The last week of May, we were in principal photography. Nice. Our producing partners were giving me hell. This, this can't be done. Dude, we found a private jet that I had to pay for. Jesse Isler. Shout out to Jesse Isler. Like I said, I put a post out there. I need a private jet. A few people were smiling. A bunch of different people were smiling. I think I got one. Jesse is like, hey, I used to own a private jet company. Reach out to this dude. I reached out to this New York cat. <laughs> this is hardcore New York. He's like, yo, man, what's up, man? New York. He's like, ah, I got my you up. Found me a private jet. I had to pay $21,000 for, for 14 hours, but it was worth it. And, and I remember my producing partners were like, dude, let's just get a cheap jet. Let's just... I had one guy who wanted to give me a private jet for free that was small. I was like, no, but that's not going to be authentic. Because there's no way that small private jet is going to be able to get from that part of the world to this part of the world. And I really wanted to, to make it authentic. Like everything that happened in that film that you saw happen, I'm not exaggerating everything. I'm just changing locations and events and names of people to hide the identities. But that whole type of campaign that is so wow. intricate. And so got the private jet, uh, threw the money in, in, in the bank, the money that I, that I had, got a few, a few thousand dollars for some other people. Pass just hit up Justin Garza. <laughs> I was like, dude, I need you to pay this, play this guy. Hit up Gonzo. He's like, oh man, got some people from the uh, acting school that I went to a year, a few years earlier. Uh, and a buddy of mine, Khalid, who I served in the Navy with, um, he uh, uh, he lives in Kansas. He had been trying to get me to shoot something in Kansas for a long time. He's like, dude, you know, babe, you know these people. Tell them to bring, let's bring films to Kansas because he's worked with the uh, Kansas Film Commission <laughs> to bring a, a tax credit. To Kansas, mm. and he was like, "Dude, you could do this for little to nothing." And he was absolutely right. This film, if I filmed it in LA or any other place, would have cost me a million dollars to make. Right? I was able to get everything dirt cheap or at some points free. Um, and so, so got out to Kansas, got the cast, everything in place, got my my cast trained because none of my you know Justin doesn't speak Spanish, <laughs> which I didn't he know. did an amazing uh, job with all that. Yeah, like, yeah, that was. He Spanish. Yeah, he didn't speak the other language. I won't give away the other language. He didn't speak. He learned that language. The two girls it sounded um, legit. Exactly. And we had uh, Jocelyn Hamadi, who 
who he's uh, he was from Iraq. He was an interpreter in Iraq for the SEAL teams, and uh, he uh, he he trained uh, he trained everybody. He trained wow. the two with the two sisters. Yeah, the screams by the getting on the plane. The screams. Yeah, yeah, pretty powerful. That was crazy. Yeah, all the credit goes to the actors, man. They they crushed it, man. And they learned the language. They did the training, and then we got out there and shot it, brother. Like it was just like set up a shot, giving that. And I give a lot again. I give a lot of credit to films that I've watched, filmmakers that I've watched, Antoine Fuqua and stuff mm-hmm. that he's done, and a lot of other directors. Like I said, Christopher Nolan, Denny Villeneuve, Sicario was my inspiration for the film, mm-hmm. for the short film. And but then also like being on set with Michael Bay and being on set with all these like with Jakob Verbruggen for Invasion and all these other different directors and being able to sit with them and learn, you know, that's what helped me be able to shoot that. And we shot it in four days. You know what I mean? Wow. And uh, and, uh, that's aggressive. Yeah. 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 It was. It was. It was nuts. Um, But my crew stuck it out, and and we got the product that we got, and you know that was. That was the goal. That was that had been the goal was to be able to get a. I didn't want something cheesy or looking low budget or anything. Like that. I wanted something that could tell this story and relay the message to the people. And so, yeah, we wrapped that and got it through post production October of last year. And then we started our festival circuit run, and uh, you know that's starting to wind up. And now we're coming up to the to the release, um, which is going to be uh, um, September thirtieth. And, you know, hoping that it gets out there and and, uh, and changes lives. And then we also, you know, I'm sure I'm, I share this with you. I can share because it's I'm assuming that by the time this plays, like it'll already be announced. But Alan Siegel um, and G-Base, Draw Butler's production company and Alan Siegel signed on to produce the feature film, which that script is already written. Um, based on and, based on this or? Yeah, it picks up five years after the events of the of the short film. So, yeah, so it's, it's, we're, we're following that story, but this is going to be more of a, I couldn't afford to do action in this short film because action is expensive, but it's going to be an action thriller in the same vein of Sicario. Think Sicario meets Logan. And it's, and, 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 and the story is going to follow, um, 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 won't give away too much, but the story is going to follow someone that's going to help essentially burn down this organ harvesting ring. Nice. And so, and, and, but it's also going to educate people on the reality mm-hmm. of organ harvesting. So it's going yeah. to be done in an entertaining way. So we just, we, we just, he, Alan Siegel and G Base and Gerard Butler just signed on to produce that. And then um, we did, we're in negotiations now with uh, Tenderfoot TV. Uh, they want to do it on a, a scripted, uh, now the podcast series called The Unexpected. Um, which is going to be like actors and all that stuff. We're oh. stretching out the story. So I didn't, when I made this film, I didn't make this film to be able to do a feature. I didn't make this film to be able to do the podcast. I made this film to educate the audience, to let people know that, you know, you know, it's a $32 billion industry, you know, 30,000 victims, just sex trafficking, not organ harvesting, not testing, not labor, but 30,000 victims of just uh, sex trafficking die every year in captivity. Um, uh, every year, every 365 freaking, uh, uh, Women and children account for the 600 to 8,000, 600 to 800,000 globally trafficked victims. Organ harvesting is a real thing all over the world. There's stories out of India. Um, there's stories out of uh, the, the capital of organ harvesting is Egypt, which a lot of people don't know. Um, a major hub for human trafficking in and of itself is San Diego and, and Houston. 
and and Miami. Um, when it comes to the United States, we're the biggest consumer of, of materials that have been created by traffic victims as it relates to pornography. Right now on the border, there's a crisis, and a lot of people don't realize that that crisis is tied, specifically tied to human trafficking. I interviewed a guy um, uh, who who's connected to one of the guys who worked on the film who was trafficked from Venezuela to Colombia to Mexico and finally fled, escaped. He was the only guy who was one of two people who survived this trafficking situation, escaped into the United States. I just interviewed him two days ago, and he, he, he told me how... Um, the cartel and gangs and traffickers created these fake travel agencies and these fake travel agency pamphlets and ads, digital ads. And he said, and that's how he found out and how he ended up getting to Mexico. And they sent those ads to coyotes all across South America and other places in the world. And so that's how, so, so he got the ad. He went from Venezuela because he wanted to come to the United States because the ad essentially says, America wants you. America mm-hmm. says that you can come in. So come, we can facilitate your way in. <laughs> and so he went, he went from Venezuela to Colombia, jumped from Colombia to Mexico. As soon as he got to Mexico, this travel agency gave him a, a short-term job on the border. Then one day, uh, a car pulled up. He was ordered to get in a car. Uh, he got in a car, got drove to another location. Uh, got out of the car, got thrown in the trunk. There were three females already in the truck who was who had their, uh, their face duct taped. They, he was moved to a mansion in Mexico. He stayed in that mansion for months. There were about 100 other men, women, and children in this specific mansion. All of them received the same ad. All of them were lured in some way, to, to funneled in some way to this specific location through this travel agency. I say this in air quotes. The kids were used for, to, to move drugs into the United States. Okay, there's been many, many stories of this where, and I mean, there's a lot of stories of this here in San Diego where with children, babies who have been cut open, their organs have been taken out, they've been stuck with drugs, swaddled, like babies are swaddled, eyes closed, and they're moved into the United States, and that's how the drugs have come in. Multiple stories of that. I've known about this for years. Some of the kids were using that way from that house. Other kids, for, as it relates to drugs, because they're not as, as expected to have drugs, were, were pretty much used to go through tunnels or go through the border with drugs to get into the United States. Those kids were never found again. Um, The women were used for sex trafficking and the men were used for labor and a combination of funds. So they had their family members sent in the United States had to send $9,000 to this specific group, this this various group. Once the $9,000 was sent, there was no use for the men anymore after labor, so they were killed. He's one of, of, of two people who survived that incident. There were three of them that were about to survive, but it was this female. She ended up getting executed in front of them, stripped naked and executed because she was talking too much. I asked him, I said, you know, what message do you have to send to, to America? You know, and he was like, it's real. He was like, because of the disorder at the border and, and, and your, and the, the lack of, 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 mm-hmm. of, of, of laws on the border, you as Americans have created an environment for people to get enslaved. And when he said that, like my mind, like it was just like a freaking, my mind blew up because I was just like, the crazy thing is we know slavery has been around since the beginning of time. You know what I mean? It's nothing new. Uh, but here in America, when we hear slavery, we automatically think of the 1800s. 
And slavery did take place here in the United States in the 1800s. And we did facilitate, you know, the last real massive array of human trafficking. But we are still contributing to that now with what's going on in the border. And he said there were people from Kurdistan, Africa, <laughs> freaking uh, different parts of Asia who all came to South America and were moved up into Mexico and were trafficked. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's, there's so many other stories and so many other things that, 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 that I've come across and I've seen working with these different human trafficking organizations and doing research for the film and stuff. And, and at the end of the day, that's why I made the film. Because, you know, when people think of human trafficking, they just think of sex trafficking. They forget these other subsets, such as organ harvest, mm-hmm. which is a real thing. It's not some cartoon horror movie thing. It's a real deal thing. Egypt is the capital of the organ harvesting trade. And like I said, in India, there was a, there was a woman, a story came out, and people could Google all of this stuff. All they got to do is type in organ harvesting, and a lot of these cases will pop up. There's a story recently of a woman in India who was, um, she, she was in this impoverished side of town and she received a message, hey, there's a job opportunity for you in New Delhi. She went to New Delhi, was put up in an apartment. Her boss told her, and I say this in air quotes, and I'm not sure people are going to be able to hear, so I, I got to say yeah, what yeah, I yeah. Her boss um, told her, uh, hey, I need you to go get a medical checkup. She goes to go get a medical checkup, as she was told, because she couldn't start working until she got this medical checkup, strips naked and waiting for the doctor to come in while she's waiting. Her astuteness and her attentiveness saved her life. While she was waiting, she overheard one of the nurses, the the nurse say to the doctor, yes, this one, she's the one that's going to be giving organs today. Got dressed pretty much fled, got the hell out of there, alerted the authorities. They were able to uncover a multi-million dollar organ harvesting ring that had been going on for years. I mean, Pakistan, it's happening. Freaking, it's all over South America, it's happening. And, you know, there's an organ shortage for for those who are in need. And that's going to always be the case as long as we have human beings until the end of time. There's going to always be people who need organs. And they need healthy organs, which essentially means younger people. Exactly. And then, and there's going to always not be enough. And, you know, there are people who are going to desperate measures. And, and, and I'll say this last thing, because I know I'm going on a tangent here, but there's another piece of this where there are people who are willingly seeking out traffickers to sell their organs. And that's out of desperation. A lot of migrants do this in India and in, uh, in Egypt, also in South America. And they're willingly doing this for an opportunity because they're desperate. And I didn't, if, 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 I wouldn't understand this if I didn't do this trip with, with, with OUR to Dominican Republic. This would be the last story I should When we were there, I went into this chapel. I think I touched on it a little bit, but I'll go further with this. And, and, and the, the, we're in this slum that was Paul Larry. This guy brings me into this chapel. At the end of this chapel, there's this baby, couldn't be more than six months old, who was, who was dead in a casket, six months old. The guy explained to me that the reason why the baby died is because the mother, she wasn't getting enough sustenance, so her, her milk dried up. So she bought formula. She mixed the formula with water. The water is not, you can't drink the water. The water is killing adults. Gave the baby the, 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 the milk, gave the baby the formula with the bad water to kill the baby. 
the reason why he showed me this was because he was trying, he wasn't trying, he wasn't trying to justify why parents do what I'm about to tell you they do, but he was just trying to paint a picture as to why they do what they're doing. So then he goes on to tell me that because we were in this particular slum, because this slum was known for the parents selling their children to traffickers in the North of DR to be sex trafficked. Europeans, Americans go to the North of DR where the tourist area and they have sex with the girls and the boys and the kids. And this is all known, it's all documented. This is not something that's, that's like some QAnon hidden crazy thing. This is all like actual facts that people can uncover. There's documented cases and all of this stuff. And so the parents were selling their kids to be trafficked for sex in the North of DR. And he explained to me that the reason why they're doing that is because in their minds, they're saving their other kids' lives and their lives by giving up the kids to be sex trafficked. Now to us and myself, I, I got four kids. I can't comprehend that. But when, but, but when you see the poverty that they're in, you can kind of, and I'm not even, I don't, don't want to be very light and minute, but you can kind of kind of get a glimpse, but you still can't really understand that. And that's what's happening with organ harvesting. You get these people that are so desperate and, and, and to us, it's, it's like, you talk to some of these people, they don't understand how we can, you know, call out our, our politicians and the president and all that stuff, call them names, because to them, they're like, dude, you do that over here, you get your head chopped off. Right. <laughs> so they can't understand the concept of freedom of speech, like, <laughs> right? And so, you know, you get these people who are in these utter desperate situations. And, 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 and so some of them willingly will sell their organs, sell their kids for sex, sell their kids for labor in order to, because they're desperate. And, and that was one thing I just wanted to hit on because I didn't want pe- don't want people to think that every single case is a case where, you know, a girl gets tricked to go to this place or yeah. a girl gets snatched and gets an organ. There are different facets to this. There's different levels to this. And it's, and it's going to just keep growing, especially given the global recession that we're about to go in. And these guys are so sophisticated. I mean, they're employing computer science engineers. They're using apps. They're using social media. I mean, during the lockdown alone, recruitment online went up 25%. I mean, recruitment on Instagram alone, just Instagram, went up 95%, 25% increase in recruitment on Facebook. And there's so many stories of kids being lured through social media. You get traffic for sex drugs and organs. It's so crazy. Like if I put a video up and there's music playing in the background and I just put it up all of a sudden I'm flagged and I get this warning that says you're using music, even if it's just in the background, it's not even, don't even mean to. And it's like, they're on it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we could focus some of that energy uh, elsewhere. Exactly. I agree 1000%. Oh, makes you hug 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 your kids. Yeah. Yeah. God, how do they, those ones that you were talking about that, uh, are stuff with drugs, baby stuff with drugs, uh, bring them across the border, that sort of a thing. I mean, do these people just euthanize them with some sort of a, a drug, like a little like kid, like, cause you're not putting a, a bullet in the head because he has to look oh, like it's still alive. They're coming across the border. Do they shoot like they, is that what they do? They euthanize them? I'm not a hundred percent sure. Cause I was, yeah. I, I was a more, I'm not ready until I just know about the aftermath of it. So I'm mm-hmm. not sure if they're killing the kids. I'm, I would assume that, you know, there's a point where the kid is getting cut open, but I'm not, the worst part of it is it happens. Ugh. It happens. I, I, I did a ride along with a border patrol agent uh, about three years ago that helped me understand the border crisis and, 
everything that's going on with human trafficking. And, you know, obviously I can't mention his name, but he showed me pictures. He showed me pictures of kids that were dead that had been stuffed with drugs and stitched up. And I, I, as you said, I didn't see any bullet wounds in the head, but I did see kid was cut all the way down the middle and stuffed full of drugs. So it's, it's, it's a very gross and we're dealing with evil people. We're we're dealing with evil people. And that's why I went back to, you know, it's one thing to kick down a door and rescue a kid and put a bullet in a trafficker's head. You can only do that but so many times. And these people are so intricate. And and that's why I wanted to make the film the way I made it, to show the intricacies of these these type of, of operations. The best way to combat this thing is psychologically. PSYOPs is by educating the masses and showing them Every week, this is an all hands on deck situation. And, you know, I wish the media would talk about this a little bit more. I wish that they would give as much attention to this as they do what's going on between Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. But the reality is somebody has to do it. Yeah. Somebody has to do it. Oh, yeah. And, uh, man, and the film, I don't want to give too much away either, but the way that the uh, uh, these parents and they but they they don't really understand exactly what they've just done yeah. uh, by taking the actions they've taken that are a couple steps removed via financing the terrorism aspect and all that stuff. But I guess I'll just leave it at, at that because I want people to go and watch this. As you said, uh, you know, you wanted to make this to educate, and I hope everybody goes to watch it. September thirtieth, it's out there. Where can they find it? Where do you where do you go to get? I'm kind of just dropping on YouTube, so I'm gonna keep it simple. I drop it on YouTube on my uh, YouTube channel, Remy Adelake, and uh, that way I've had oppor- I had an opportunity to put it on like a, a subscribe type network where people can pay to watch it. But I was just like, no, I just want people to watch it. So dropping it on YouTube September 30th, and it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be available for everybody to see, and hopefully everybody will watch and, uh, and 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 get into the fight in some way. Man. Well, amazing job. You've got so much going on. I'm fired up for the, for the book chameleon. Uh, when that comes out, I can't wait to read it. And, uh, and this, you have, you have this in the, the film here, uh, closing our eyes to the darkness in this world doesn't extinguish it, but only deepens it. Yeah. I wrote that yep. down too. That's, uh, Thank you, brother. yeah, yep. that's right that's there at the beginning brother. of the film right there. And then what is it? Exoduscry.com. Is that uh, a place you send people for more information? Yeah, so I said, yeah, Exodus Cry is a place that people can go if they want to want to donate or if they want to learn more about uh, human trafficking. Exodus Cry focuses more on the on the sex trafficking side. Mm. Um, uh, tried to find different partners to partner with, but uh, they were the ones that I landed on. But yeah, that's the that's the first group that they can go to if they want to learn more and, and dip their toe into the uh, the sex trafficking side of things. They've done a great job in. in uh, um, Battling Pornhub, which a lot of traffic victims end up on Pornhub, and uh, uh, and uh, and some of these other apps um, that people utilize. So um, they've done a great job. So I just want to partner with somebody that's actually doing work because you know the interesting thing is you do get a, there are a lot of human trafficking organizations out there <laughs> uh, that are you know in my opinion just collecting a check, not really doing a job. You know what I mean? And they're 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 uh, portraying that they're doing something, but the reality is they're not. 
Um, and uh, and that's another reason why I wanted to release this film on YouTube for free because I wanted to show people that I'm not here to make a buck. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm here to, here to, here to you know, get the word out there. So, you know, uh, Exodus Cry is really making a difference out there. Um, so it, it, that's where you can start and, you know, people can do their research and find other trafficking organizations that they can do, donate to and give to if they want to go to OUR, that's one. Um, there's a bunch of other ones as well. Man, incredible. Incredible. Well, you've got a ton going on. And so I appreciate you taking this time. I've wanted to do this for a long time. Like I've had this book since it, since it came out. Like I didn't just buy this for the podcast. I've had this for the longest time. Yeah. So, so I've had it forever. Uh, and this is the film coming out was a great excuse to, to get together and get to hang out for a little bit. And man, thanks for doing the terminal list and, uh, looking forward to SAS and, but it's going to be called something different in the U.S., right? Isn't it? Yeah, called? yeah. I think yeah. They posted the name of it because they because they went back and forth over a name for a long period of time, and they finally kind of landed on Special Forces: The Ultimate Test. Got it. So okay. That's what the Special Forces: The Ultimate Test. So yeah, look out for that in January. But man, I want to give you your your flowers too, man, because man, much respect to you. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of Terminal List. Amazing show. Thank you for leading from the front, you know, as a storyteller and a frog man doing everything with excellence, man. You're somebody that I look up to uh, as it relates to this world of, as it relates to everything, you know, being a frog man, being a frog man in the entertainment business, being a frog man as a writer, just being a straight up good, humble, great dude. So, you know, I just want to give you your due respect and just say thank you and thank you for all you're doing. You're awesome. Oh man, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And yeah, hopefully we can link up here in person soon. And uh, yeah, I'm going to stay on you about the book because uh, I want to I want to check that thing out and uh, tell uh, John Talbot I said hi. And man, I will, I will yeah, hopefully we work on another project together one of these days. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That'd be awesome. Absolutely. Get something going, man. Bring HRT back. Bring him back. <laughs> Bring him back. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll, be, I'll, I'll have to jump in. T and jump back. Awesome. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's so great. Awesome, man. Cool. Well, hey, I appreciate this. And uh, yeah, best wishes, everything you have going on. And hopefully I'll see you again soon. Most definitely. Definitely will. I appreciate you too, man. God bless and much love. Take care. Bye, brother. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Navy Federal Credit Union. I've been a member since 1996. That is my first year in the military. And right now, when you become a member of Navy Federal Credit Union, life gets better. That's why they created a fully loaded car buying experience. I bought cars and motorcycles using it in the past. You can finance, buy, protect, and enjoy your auto purchase all from one convenient place. They have pre-approval that's good for 90 days, so you know what you can afford while you shop. They also offer great auto loan rates. You can shop for new and used cars with Navy Federal's car buying service powered by TrueCar. You can also get exclusive member savings with Carfax, SiriusXM, and more. They're always available with 24-7 member service representatives to answer any questions. Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash car buying. Credit and collateral subject to approval. Navy Federal Credit Union is federally insured by NCUA. Check them out, NavyFederal.org. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of The Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose 
and use code DANGERCLOSE20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Raffle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Today's gear segment is sponsored by Zero Foxtrot. Zero Foxtrot provides unique products that reflect the old school vintage military lifestyle. I've actually been following these guys for a while. Love what they're doing. Have a bunch of other shirts and coffee mugs downstairs from uh, uh, from the last few years. Just love it when guys get out and absolutely crush it. Zero Foxtrot is veteran founded and is a proud supporter of our nation's defenders, veterans, and first responders. I'm actually wearing this shirt. Look at that. Canoe Club USA. What does that mean? I think you're going to have to look it up in your web browser, the Google machine. Canoe Club USA, awesome shirts out there. They have limited edition ones that drop every now and again that are super cool. So definitely go to zerofoxtrot.com. And right now, we have an exclusive code for listeners of Danger Close. Use code JC at checkout for 20% off your order. Very cool. Remember, you can gear up with Zero Foxtrot and use code JC at checkout for 20% off your order. Just go to zerofoxtrot.com slash JC and remember to use code JC for 20% off at checkout or just click the link in the description. Once again, that offer code is JC. Gear up with Zero Foxtrot and use code JC for 20% off. Awesome. Definitely do that and check out all they have going on. Follow them on the social channels. They have some great things out there. They do some history posts every now and again that are really cool and very well thought out. Definitely check out zerofoxtrot.com for all the stuff. They have Zippo lighters in there. They have these mugs right here. What does that say? Drink coffee, stack bodies. Stay zero. Love this. And then this one right here, this is cool. This might be a limited edition one. I'm not sure. Um, but for St. Patrick's Day, lack fear, not beer. Look at that. Boom. Love it. Awesome. So that's what they look like right there. Zero Foxtrot. And you get a little of that action right there. That's a sticker. But uh, check out their t-shirts, mugs right here. Whiskey glasses. These are some of my favorites right there. Look at that. Oh, yeah. Solid. So check them out for sure, zerofoxtrot.com slash JC for 20% off. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. Now this pistol is one that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. It is the SIG P365X macro, and this thing has a 17 round magazine. Yes, you heard me right. 17 rounds in a P365. Awesome. They sent this one with a red dot optic and a little light. But this thing is awesome. I shot it for the first time yesterday, and I think this is going to become my daily carry. I absolutely love it, and I would not be surprised if it makes its way into a future novel. All right, what else do I have here? Rugged R-H-U-G. Ed.com. Uh, my buddy Chris Osmond from the SEAL teams sent me a nice little care package here. So, Chris, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Once again, rugged right here. Rugged and it R H U G E D. And look at these ones right here. Freedom Seeds. Oh, yeah. Very cool. And you can go to that website. I'm not sure if you can link to their social channels or not because Chris is always getting kicked off of social channels, it seems. And if you know him, that shouldn't be a surprise, but uh, check out rugged.com. Chris, thank you so much, my friend. Sincerely appreciate it. 
What else do I have here? Solomon shoes. Oh yeah. If you've been following me for a while, you know I love these and uh, got a little retro color action going on here. So Eric Anderson over there at Solomon, thank you so much for sending these along. And uh, if I finish this next book, we might even hit the mountain this winter. We'll see. And oh, right here, hmm, Black Point Tactical. I love Black Point Tactical. This is the mini wing right here. And one of the things I love about them is that they put what it's for on the holster. So if you have more than one, you can quickly find the one that you're looking for. So right here, Black Point Tactical, check them out. Great crew over there. And, oh yeah, Montana Knife Company. Josh Smith over there, Montana Knife Company, doing great work. And this is a collab that they did with Fieldcraft Survival, with Mike Glover and the crew over there at Fieldcraft Survival. And if you're interested in Montana Knife Company stuff, you got to go to their website. You got to sign up for their newsletter to find out when these drops are coming because they go quick. And this one, I think, went out uh, in less than a minute, I want to say. And this right here, this is their Everyday Carry Blade. Once again, Montana Knife Company and Fieldcraft Survival right here. This thing feels great. So thank you guys for sending. Sincerely appreciated. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Remy Adelecki and everything he has going on, follow him on the social channels and on Twitter and Instagram. He is Remy Adelecki and it is R-E-M-I-A-D-E-L-E-K-E. Also be sure to go and check out the film, The Unexpected, on his YouTube channel. And then in January, SAS Who Dares Wins, which is being called Special Forces, The Ultimate Test for U.S. Audiences. That'll be on Fox. Amazing. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and also click on shop for the merchandise. And if you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe as well. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or <laughs> right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.